Blog Talk Radio. For sustained humanity, human beings, human love, on a spiritual tip, so vast, so great, the African embrace. Live beyond, love beyond your skin to where you belong. Oh, 
Fuck it's a good original one. Hip hop town, with the hip hop town, with the hip hop town. Fuck it's a How do we be? We are doo-wop and bebop and hip-hop that we don't stop. You see, it started a long time ago and it wasn't a show. We gave birth to a style like a precocious child. Feeling the passion for life, erasing away all the strife. Telling our tales with verbal mail, putting honey on the blade, creating language to persuade. Share who we've always been. Always a blessing, never a sin. We are doo-wop and bebop and hip-hop and we don't stop. Since our mother gave birth to everyone on earth. So we echo her call. And always walk tall. Cause we're hip to the world, so we create black pearl. That everyone can wear, that everyone can share. We can't live in despair, so we shine everywhere. On and on. On and on. On and on. We'd like to welcome you on this 25th day of July 2021 to another exciting episode of Africa on the Moon as your host. Brother Africa, it's always an honor and a privilege to speak truth to the powerless and the powerful. We will be addressing the theme tonight, affecting human development and bodies. We talk about the human bodies. That will be our feature theme tonight. Before we get into our feature theme tonight, like always, the way we get started with our party is to invite you to come and join us. As we introduce to you our political panelists and analysts, and start out our party with the section of what's going on in your world and the community. Then followed by a discussion of a theme as we relate to various topics that are affecting our community. We encourage you to join in with us by dialing 323-679-0841. If you have any comments or views where you would like to express, doing this program, please do so by hitting one, and we will acknowledge your last four number. So right now, let's get started with our party by first and foremost, introducing you to our political panelists and analysts for today's program. We first will start with Brother Haki. We would like to welcome him to Africa on the move. Welcome, Brother Haki. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Martin Shoki. Currently, I'm with African Awareness, and of course, you know, Brother Africa, my thing is all about institution building. But in order to build institutions, one of the things important to dispel, we need this, uh, we need to dispel this notion that, in fact, that uh, the system is set up in a, in a manner which is uh, conducive toward justice. Uh, many people are under false sense of the, illu- the illusion that, in fact, that the system is fair and it, it operates that way. The bottom line is from the very top, uh, in terms of international system to the very uh, uh, lo- 
local or national system is very, very clear that this kind of um, inequality is built into the system. And so one of the things that politicians talk a lot about, they talk about um, rule-based order. And essentially, rule-based order is something that's somewhat uh, uh, nefarious. So I thought I'd take this opportunity to talk more about precisely what a rule-based order is and what it means to the lives of people who are right here inside the belly of the beast. Now, Brother Africa, check this out. Now, the level of distortion and deceptions employed by the U.S. political system is nothing short of unscrupulous, a kind of Machiavellian void with no end in sight. These deceptions are best exemplified by philosophical constructs establishing the limits by which the interests of a society should be accommodated. In the U.S., a term borrowed from France, establishing a framework from which society should be organized, ultimately involved to establish a framework for international relations among states. Historically, the transformation of this word lost its original interpretation only to evolve into a uniquely American connotation where individual freedoms would take precedent over social good or the interests of the citizens. The word liberalism was used to define how institutions throughout the world should be organized. Liberalism being just a concept had to be utilized in a concrete way to ensure tangible results. This part it was made clear during post-World War II tensions between the U.S. and Russia. With the defeat of Nazism and the Russian working class mantra favoring workers over capital or the wealthy, the very real threat to U.S. institutions that favored the rich over the poor had to be addressed by U.S. elites. Consequently, in 1947, the concept of liberalism would be fused into a concept called rules-based order. Succinctly stated, rules-based order would unofficially elevate America as the top hegemon or the top power, while officially espousing equality among Western states with China, Ethiopia, Japan, Egypt, and the Popeye South Africa as, ex as exceptions. This rules was clear to many states internationally, but their participation during Bretton Woods conferences created multilateral institutions solidifying U.S. control of the world, specifically designating the dollar reserve currency status with the ability to print money at will or run endless debt, debt deficits meant Western states, by extension, the whole world were obliged to participate in this raid that would impoverish most of the world's peoples under the rule-based order. Notwithstanding the blatant shortcomings of rule-based order, promises of prosperity for the world or the reality is quite different. Attitudes propagandizing the greatness of rule-based order on U.S. terms are often met with silence by other states. Unwilling to expose the tangible benefits enjoyed by the U.S. ruling class to the detriment of other states under rule-based order, their patience is waning. When China, Russia, or Iran confront U.S. leaders on their hypocrisy, it is a realization the diplomatic route is not working, that engaging a nation in, in denial is simply counterproductive. Secretary of State Blinken, for his part, informed the Chinese delegation in Anchorage, Alaska, quote, our administration is committed to leading with diplomacy to advance the interests of the U.S. and strengthen the rules-based international order. Adding to the statement, he declared, the alternative is a world in which might makes right, and that would be a far more violent and unstable world, end quote. Wow, speaking of inverted truths, now where should I begin? Now, does Blinken represent the same U.S. that wrecked Zimbabwe's economy to, to prevent land from being returned to the people it was stolen from? Is this the same America that routinely steals Venezuela gold, money, and COVID-19 vaccines? Is this the same America that imposes an embargo on tiny Cuba 
to impose hardship on his people? Is this the same America that cut the supply chain in hopes of undermining China's economy only to increase poverty and despair among its own people? Now, furthering this indignity, the Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen, desires to see the U.S. decoupled trade with China, which will only exacerbate inflation and contribute to an already unstable bond market, which is key to U.S. borrowing and employment for U.S. citizens. Instability, violence is at the core of U.S. policy, and the rules-based order is directly implicated. Now, rules-based order, if not true to the tenets of human rights, lacks the foundation to expand on its promises of respect for the law, due process, or non-governmental overreach. If the cases of Julian Assange and Ali Saab are indicative of respect for the law, the world is in big trouble. Assange continues to languish in jail for the crime of journalism. Despite Assange's attempt, along with WikiLeaks editor Sarah Harrison, attempt to reach out to the State Department to inform them 250,000 diplomatic cables were in imminent danger of being released, the State Department brushed him off, stating, call back in two hours. It was revealed the media organization WikiLeaks had relationships with all had the capabilities to redact the materials. So this notion that somehow Julian Assange was unilaterally responsible for what happened in terms of release of those documents is totally false. All those organizations had the opportunity to, to, to uh, redact a very sensitive information to make sure it never gets to the public. Now, perhaps the biggest piece of exculpatory evidence is the Department of Justice star witness admitted he lied. It was also revealed this pedophile extortionist, Siggy Darson, was paid by the FBI. Despite powerful information vindicating Assange, he remains incarcerated. So as to set an example to other journalists, do your job and this could happen to you. And incidentally, the New York Times printed articles, and uh, none of the leadership, none of the management in the New York Times end up in trouble with the U.S. government. Now, the second case, Alex Saab, is, is quite interesting. Mr. Saab, a Venezuelan diplomat or businessman, en route to Iran to secure businesses for, business for Venezuela, was kidnapped by Cabo Verde authorities on behalf, on behalf of the U.S. Mr. Saab has been in prison for over one year awaiting extradition to South Florida, on charges of corruption and money laundering. These bogus charges are part of the continuation of the destabilization of the Venezuelan economy. Allegedly, the FBI attempted to flip or coerce Mr. Saab to lie about Venezuelan leadership, but Mr. Saab has refused. Interestingly enough, when journalists ask U.S. officials about the illegality of kidnapping foreign officials or diplomats, U.S. officials responded, diplomatic immunity does not violate international law, end quote. Unless Unless diplomats, interesting enough, unless Democrats are, are, according to international law, involved in crimes that directly affect the state where their embassy is housed, they can't be arrested. What the U.S. did was not only criminal but illegal, but then so is rules-based order, American style. And I close with that, Brother Africa. All right. Thank you, Brother Haiti. Next, we'd like to welcome Brother Moses. We'd like to welcome Brother Moses to... Ask on the move. Welcome, Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism in the government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. I, I 
supports the Equal Rights Amendment, E-R-A-S, Women Hold Up Half the Sky. And um, at this time, if I, I'm going to attempt to um, read the statement of the Cuban Federation of Women, uh, um, regarding the situation in Cuba, uh, if I can find it, let's see. Declaration of the Cuban Women's Federation. Friends and sisters of the world, once again, the enemy is betting on undermining order and sabotaging the tranquility of the Cuban peoples and families. At a time when Cuba is determined to continue to fight for life in the framework of a complex epidemiological situation generated by the pandemic of COVID-19 and its community transmission stage. The empire does not give up its attempt to destroy the Cuban revolution. The small groups paid for such purposes have mixed without the slightest signs of scruples alleged counter-revolutionary actions with banditry, sabotage, and crimes of the worst kind. Once again, they demonstrate the true intentions of these lackeys. They have the pretense of giving the image that the revolutionary government does not have the capacity to respond to the health crisis, to the economic shortages of medicine and medical supplies, which the Cuban people and families are going through, blatantly ignoring which they are the true reasons for such vicissitudes. The United States government dedicates hundreds of millions of dollars to destabilize internal order and citizen tranquility using sophisticated methods at any cost. On this occasion, more cruel by taking advantage of the difficult social conditions caused by the pandemic on the planet, to which in our case are added the harmful effects of the intensification of the measures of economic, commercial, and financial blockade. It is a strategy designed by imperialism which includes manipulations for political purposes sustained by successive governments of the United States from the, true, the, from the very revolutionary triumph. That the U.S. government were genuinely concerned about the situation facing the island, it would cease its subversive actions and put an end to the genocidal blockade, which constitutes the main obstacle to the development of the country. Despite this, the country's highest leadership with responsibility, commitment, and effort continues to adopt measures for the well-being of the people. Cuba has demonstrated the strength of its social system, in particular, the response capacity of science and public health expressed in the development of five own vaccine candidates and the successful transition of the health intervention process, a transcendent fact that reaches undeniable national, regional, and global connotations. We Cuban daughters of Mariana, Vilma, and Fidel will continue to fight for our rights, goals, and dreams, convinced that unity will continue to be our main trump card. We have the strength and the moral to defend our truth, to confront and energetically, energetically repudiate these subversive actions, safeguarding the tranquility, sovereignty, and independence of the homeland, sure that we protect the future of our sons and daughters, and the guarantee that they continue to enjoy the conquest of our socialist, social system. We support the words spoken by our first, first secretary of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of Cuba and President of the Republic of Cuba, Miguel Diaz-Canel Bermudez. We are not going to hand over the sovereignty of the independence of this nation, quote, unquote. National Secretary of the Federation of Cuban Women, thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, for reading the statement coming directly from Cuba, from the people of the Federation of Cuban Women. We thank you very much. Those people have gotten first-hand knowledge 
on to the so-called, so-called issues that are going on inside Cuba. Right now, next we will go to uh, some of our participants who have just recently joined us. We can call all your last four numbers, and you can introduce yourself to our listening audience. We are called call of seven. 7236, 7236. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Yes, good evening, Brother Africa. This is Eleanor Johnson. Good evening to everyone that is participating in this uh, evening's um, cat, uh, show. And uh, I want to stand in solidarity with the uh, Cuban people. It is unfortunate that they're having problems generating electricity. Uh, with uh, receiving vital medical equipment, and it has caused the uproar we see in Cuba. Something even more devastating is also happening in South Africa. They're unable to receive the vaccine and are on a, uh, being uh, greatly impacted by the pandemic, as are the Cuban people. So I would urge all U.S. citizens to ask their uh, representatives both locally and nationally to to bring an end to this outrageous uh, blockade against the Cuban people. It's, it's been it's almost 60 years at least, and it's time for it to end. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Noah. We go to our next participant. The last four numbers is 0796. Oh, seven nine six. Introduce yourself. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Oh, seven nine six. Okay, let's move forward. Oh, seven nine six. Let's go to our call of five one five five. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Call of five one five five. Call five one five five. Introduce yourself, please. Hey, brother Lee, how are you? This is brother Boyd. How are you? Who is this, brother? Introduce yourself again. Uh, yeah, this is Bol Bol Gaiden. How are you? You just um, just brother Bol Gaiden. How you doing, my brother? Brother Bol. I'm doing good. Um, I'm before doing we good. get I'm you to well. give us an update on what's going on, just briefly introduce yourself to our listening audience. Uh, my name is Bol uh, Bol Gaiden. Uh, of course, um, I've been an active in this community in the U.S. Uh, from the South Sudan, Africa. And I've been also the candidate for the president of the country. Uh, the country has been at war for a long time. I was actually enslaved uh, by the Islamic Arab militant in my country, in Africa, and then I hand over in America. So I'm a former slave uh, in the 21st century. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Brother Bo. We want you to hold on, hold on for a few minutes. And we have just introduced our political panelists and for the day. What we're going to do right now, we're going to take a revolutionary cultural break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what's going on in your world and the community. And we invite you to call us to share with us what's going on in your world and community. By dialing 323-679-0841. Hit 1 and we acknowledge your last phone number. So we're going to go to a revolutionary cultural break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss what's going on in your world and the community. This is Africa on the Move.
chains, living in pain. Today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey. Yeah, last through my journey. Yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. Must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey. Yeah, and made it through. My journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Hellerino, a bloodline across the waters, from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, 
and all the Pelorinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be, to know that I've been here, and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. As Brother Africa, we in the seat. We're going to take the heat. As we decide it, we're going to stand behind it. Right now, we're going to transition to our segment, What's Going On in Your World and the Community? Right now, it's been a while since we had our brother Bodane from South Sudan, who's running for someday of being the future president of South Sudan. It's always an honor to have a brother from the motherland on the program, and he can give us his synopsis, an update, a perspective on what's going on in Sudan and his world. Brother Bo, welcome back to Africa on the Moon. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Lee, for having me, and I thank the participants, and I thank the audience who are listening to your show, The Africa on the Moon. It's a great title, and I hope that... uh, that dream will come true. Uh, as I mentioned, my name is Bold, uh, Bolding or Bolgaiding. Uh, very much being uh, a former slave, a 21st century, an African slave. So I am talking about this slavery now, and the slavery is still going on in Africa today. We have two point. Excuse me, we have nine point two million Africans still in market today in Africa, in Northern Africa, and no one is talking about it. We have a market that opened up in Libya. It's still going on in Northern Africa. Then you can find a good woman, a decent woman, black woman. You have to pay four hundred U.S. dollar. You can have also a man can work for you and also $400, maybe $300 at least. This is what is going on. So when it comes to South Sudan, it's a country that has been ruined by war, civil war. People call it civil war, but for me, I call it occupation. I don't call it civil war. I call it invasion to African industry indigenous land because Sudan itself is a colonial land it's not an African land it's a land that describes that black but it doesn't mean black to have ownership it means the black that are still yet not a slave or not have been, land has not been taken away from them yet 
So what the name of Sudan is. Sudan has been occupied by the Western agents, which in a term today we call them Arab, Arab Arabization, Islamization of the African indigenous. So they can lose their identities. So they become a part of the Arab League and Arab world, not African world. That has been the longest war been going on. It can go back to uh, to uh, 1800 during the slavery time back, and it's still today during the slavery. So when we got independent in 2011, we hope that we're going to be able to have a freedom in our own country. Unfortunately, our people also have been handled by individual Africans just like you and I, black men just like you and I, who mentally is not ready to serve African people have the same agenda, being an Arab inside and black outside. And start declaring the war against his own citizen, start discriminating his own citizen, start uh, declaring the, uh, the apartment against the South Sudanese, and also start inviting the former colonials, and we will fight against them to be a part of the system, to unite against the South Sudanese indigenous so he can wipe them out. And that man, his uh, name is Salfakir Mayadid. He's just a black man like you and I in this form. But he doesn't have no consciousness to understand what it means to be black, to understand what it means to be an African. So we decide to challenge him and unite the people at least can actually resign or step down because he refused to call election. And we hope we're supposed to have election. But he did not call election because he knows he's going to lose because his popularity is not even uh, people don't want him in the country. He loves the popularity. And he united with Arab League like Egypt, like North Sudan, and the United Emirates, the Saudi Arabia to destabilize the country and take it back to the north or to take it back to the Arab League. And now today he's a member of Arab League. It's supposed to be a part of the African Union. He declared to be going to Arab League to be a postal student to be a part of the Arab League. Arab League to us, according to our experience, our, our historical background with Arab League, we didn't have a good uh, history with them. We have a bad history. What we had with Arab League is a war. What we know about our league is about slavery. What we know about our league is colonization of Africa. What we know about our league is selling Islam to convert Africans to become a part of the Islamic community and then take the land of Africa. That's why you're seeing the North Africa today. It does not owned by the black. It's owned by the yellow, look Asian, uh, Western Asian. In Africa, I wonder whether North Africa was belong to Africa before or not. The Africa, whether North Africa was a totally black uh, region, but it was taken over. There's some reason that North Af- Africa was taken over. There's some reason they're fighting over Sudan today to take it over. There's some reason they're fighting over Nigeria to take it over by creating Islamic militant called Boko Haram. 
the same reason they were actually fighting uh, Tombouctou in Mali in 2013, tried to take it over. The same reason they're fighting today in uh, Mozambique and everywhere in Burkina Faso. The same reason that they're doing it in Mauritania, that Mauritania now they become comfortable being a slave is not something is a norm in Mauritania today. The Mauritanian become a norm to them. They don't even complain being a slave. They become a part of the culture. And Mauritania have lost dignity. They lost humanity. Today they are under Islamic Arabic impression. They have no way to be proud again and talk about Africa. Just to give you a summary about what's going on in the continent and what's going on in South Sudan. Egypt today is fighting Ethiopia because Ethiopia built the dam. And Egypt does not believe that there should be uh, African have no right for the Nile Valley to have water or to build anything that could increase or help them economical of the African people in Ethiopia. Egypt now is mobilizing the North Sudan, which is Sudan, to fight Ethiopia so they can defeat Ethiopia. They cannot actually build the dam. So become a big issue now because Egypt uh, see itself in Africa as the superpower of Africa. An African country was trying to do anything they need to take for permission from Egypt. If you don't take permission from Egypt, and Egypt is the headquarter of the Arab League, you are in trouble. Because the Arab League was mobilized and united with Egypt and go up to you. And that is the situation that is about the system in Ethiopia are facing today. Creating a civil war between Tigray and Oromo uh, tribes. So the slaves can kill one another. They have a term say that Abid can kill Abid or a slave kill a slave. Uh, now the uh, Tigray, which is supposed to be the African indigenous in Ethiopia and also the Aroma as indigenous of Ethiopia, now are fighting one another, getting supported by the Arab League so they can be able to stop the dam, which is supposed to be the beneficial of the African people in Ethiopia. Just to stop here, Africa is a critical uh, year and critical time. Uh, because uh, also the China are moving in. A million Chinese today, they moved to Africa with no respect to the African citizen, beating them up as they want, manipulating the system, uh, selling and owning the land, uh, giving the loan in which the Africa cannot afford to pay it back. So these are the issues that are facing in every country in Africa, in Zambia, in uh, West Africa, whether in South Africa. These are the things that are facing uh, the African people in the continent. And South Sudan is very critical. And we, the people of South Sudan, believe that uh, the man that is in now is a man that's selling out the country and is selling out his own people and is more dangerous than the colonials. And when the black men have been brainwashed, he became to work for others. He's more dangerous than the enemy. And I want you guys to make that note, to be, to be aware of. And a black man who has been brainwashed is more dangerous than the enemy that brainwashed him or her. And that's what is going on in South Sudan today. So okay, to my brother. our community... 
to fix our community, we need to hold ourselves accountable before we go ahead and blame others. And thank you for having me. Okay, my brother, as you know, Africa on the Move, um, views and people who come from get their perspectives, and we're going to let people know it's just that, their perspectives, and we'd like to thank you for getting us a perspective as an African who was born in the southern part of Sudan, and um, we continue to take a look at that and monitor that, that and uh, we'd like to thank you for sharing with us your perspective of what's going on in your world and the community. We have put you on hold every round. We'll make our transition to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the move again. What's going on in your world and your community? Brother Haki. Yeah, yeah. let me just say, first of all, greetings to Brother Bogardane. It's good to hear his voice. He always brings a proper perspective in terms of issues in which we don't deal with adequately. Uh, but one of the things that I want to talk about is um, – this question in terms of propaganda, because one of the things that, you know, as this economy uh, dislocates, one of the things you've got to understand, inevitably, the system is going to look for scapegoats. And creating that scapegoat, propaganda is going to play a big role in terms of achieving just that. So this role of propaganda to me is very, very important. So I just wrote this piece about, you know, propaganda and some of the implications when it comes to propaganda and why we have to be very, very concerned about propaganda as it places, places itself out right, you know, in the, in the, right in front of us. Now, I want you to check this out, Brother Africa. Now, Edward Bernay, uh, innovator of modern public relations, advocated expanding freedom of speech and the press only if they include freedom of government to persuade. He further stated, quote, only by mastering the techniques of communication can leadership or government be exercised fruitfully in the vast complex that is modern democracy, because in a democracy, results do not just happen, end quote. Bernay was specifically referring to the utilization of propaganda by government to operate efficiently. He did not advocate citizens' rights or partition government or rights to seek redress, but rather the necessity of government to engage in half-truths, outright lies to convince people to abandon ideas that are wrong, or in other words, to abandon ideas that are democratic, and adopt ideas favored by propagandists or government which are anti-democratic. Now, the level of sophistication employed by government propaganda is different based upon the target audience and the objective to be achieved. Target audiences are relatively easy to influence. In the U.S., socialized norms defining the good American has existed since the post-30s, defined as the citizens whose unwavering faith in U.S. institutions covered their very being. These individuals are very receptive to media campaigns that reinforces the rightness of their perceptions. However, problems for propaganda arises around objectives to be achieved. While repetition, repeating slogans, stories, and narratives regularly has been proven effective, but the complexity needed to sway public opinion calls for a level of reasoning which is difficult to encapsulate in slogans, news stories, or narratives. In the case of COVID-19, numerous questions abound with respect to its efficacy or its, or its effectiveness. Questions like this origin, the timing of the virus, the economic dislocation in the time of, these, origin, of these, these viruses, or the level of inequality in U.S. society. All these are legitimate questions in terms of the, the origin of COVID-19. Now, because of the inability of propaganda to fashion reasonableness in its methodology, the inevitable consequences of propaganda's failure has formed many demands by many to compare the U.S. to allow international teams of scientists to investigate Fort Detrick, Maryland, in lab in Maryland. To accept if COVID-19 origins are tied to U.S. intelligence. 
In all likelihood, the U.S. will never concede to these demands for a couple of reasons. First, surely the use of proper, uh, black, black propaganda will be utilized. And secondly, gatekeepers of news will certainly will come into play in terms of ensuring that people don't have access to the information. Now, with respect to the former black propaganda, this was coined by Howard Becker, sociologist of the Office of Strategic Services, with the forerunner of the Central Intelligence Agency, which we used to misrepresent the, the source of the demands. If said demands are presented as coming from perceived enemies of America, this maneuver will effective, be effective in derailing most support into investigating Fort Detrick's labs and ties to COVID-19. The second point involves the dissemination of news. Gatekeepers are, of news are those, those editors, publishers, that define news content. They define what's reported and how it's reported. As the chief arbiters of newsworthiness, their biases, prejudices reflect the legitimacy of news stories. These inclinations or prejudices of media leadership is reflected in the values, views, and ideology held by those who occupy leadership roles in media organizations. There's little mystery why diversity among top levels does not exist. Perpetuating the interests of the ruling class is best achieved if management's values are consistent with those of the ruling class. If values conflict with profitability, this ensures a harmonious relationship, and any random variable imposed on this equation is likely to be rejected, despite claims to diversity going back over 40 years. It is important, this is, it is important at this point to point out top management and media organizations do receive ancillary support from an international system of news concentrated among three news wire services. All the news dispatched to a global community or global viewership come from just three news wire services. They are one, the Associated Press, AP, which is owned by the U.S., the United States International Press, which is owned by the U.S., and the U.S.-owned Reuters, which they purchased back in 2008 from Thompson, Inc., also in, uh, owned by the U.S. Obviously, the U.S. exerts major control over news content, and the biases employed to shape the news should not be taken lightly. In fact, news content is so important, governmental and private sources both increase their investments in NPR, thus ensuring hard-hitting journalism was eliminated and NPR content, much of it, started favoring wealth. Let it be clear, private interests are committed to the bottom line, and anything that threatens the bottom line will be eliminated, with informative news being the first casualty. Now, the declining state of imperialism breeds desperation. Desperation, as the word implies, leaves little room for discussion among ruling elites. Propaganda promoting notions of an economic renaissance in a return to greatness is why propaganda exists. However, the more insidious side of propaganda recognizes the inevitable, inevitable fall of imperialism and the need for a more calculated propaganda with a predictable outcome. One, step, one, one such propaganda piece involved General Daniel Hankinson, a National Guard uh, spokesperson, who issued an ultimatum to Congress alleging if, if the National Guard is not paid $521 million is due for protecting the Capitol, after the insurrection of January 6th, persons' assistance when, and for future rights may be difficult to obtain. General Hankerson's declaration was problematic for two reasons. One, the National Guard is required by Constitution to respond to emergencies, particularly threats to the homeland. Secondly, federal law ensures mechanisms to address federal deficits. Uh, re okay, regarding the first point, mandates are for the National Guard as well as service. So in the interest of time, the sucker points will be addressed. Now, interestingly enough, Congress authorized the Pentagon to remove funds from other federal departments' budgets in case of shortfalls. Because much of Pentagon budget is classified, 
Orders is not permitted ensuring the National Guards will be reimbursed. In addition, the Pentagon is spearheading legislation currently that would remove requirements to publicize unclassified budget plans, thus alleviating control from certifying the accuracy of the Pentagon's budget. Now, General Hackerson's declaration seems out of place. As a military person, his relationship to government should be one of, of, of deference. Hackerson's oath to protect the state normally will preclude a saying that not only costs cast the state in a bad light, but reveal the precarious, the precarious nature or economy, economic state of the empire. Explaining his behavior is intriguing, but in analyzing the details of the story, what could not exclude the role of black propaganda? The details of the story read as though General Hankinson was speaking for himself. No others were disclosed view. As the representative of the National Guard, the portrayal of someone, a military man, standing alone, taking on the system should resonate with right-wing zealots. Conveying inside information attesting to the U.S. economic problems, then stating money issues in the future will determine the National Guard's response to insurrections in the future, strikes me as a dog whistle or a coded kind of language guaranteed to facilitate gossip and rumors among right wing, which can only enhance their organizing efforts. The fact most mainstream media did not publish this event suggests exposing the story too early may diminish propaganda's effectiveness. But now that it's done, we can surmise many on the right agree with Hankerson's declaration that the economic roles of the U.S. are legitimate and as such vulnerable to right-wing strategy, including insurrection, provided right-wing numbers are sufficient. Now, just, just to give you a quick update, Brother Alfred, I'll be very, very quick about this, but recently CNN did a up, uh, follow-up to that report, and it talks about the National Guard unit uh, starts to make cuts uh, after Congress failed to pay for capital security mi uh, mission. Now, the irony is that essentially what they're talking about, they're talking about one unit in Nebraska which actually talked about making cuts as a result of not being paid. But ironically, what, what the, the real irony is that, in fact, they have been paid, but it sort of go, go, creates the assumption that, in fact, that they're not going to be paid. So I talked about the fact that government or the Congress passed laws to ensure that the Pentagon could effectively take money from other budgets to, to, to make sure they can cover any budget for, shortfall in their, in their, in their budgets. And so, therefore, this notion in terms of the, the, um, federal, the, the National Guard not being compensated is a false one. So why continue to preach this notion that, in fact, that the National Guard is in danger not being paid? It's totally frivolous. I mean, it is, it is not only arbitrary, but it's fallacious. It's false. So then you've got to ask yourself, so what is the motivation in terms of keep pushing this notion that, in fact, the government is so, so scrapped for economic, for, for money, that it's willing, you know, to, you know, to, to, to simply... Uh, allow the National Guard not to not to to, to operate. Uh, clearly, it, it serves the interest in terms of the credence this narrative, which says, which at least implies that the that the, the government of the U.S. is so indebted, and there is no there's no there's no real there's no real way in terms of remedying the problems of of, of, of this of this of this 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 this, this, this power this, not powerlessness but this poverty that the U.S. government uh, is, is 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 going through that the reality is that there's a very likelihood in the future that the government simply won't have the funds in terms of financing the National Guard for any type of potential insurrection. Now, if that doesn't appeal to the right wing, I don't know what does. So clearly, all everything they're saying is in direct opposition to, in fact, policy uh, as it exists as it relates to budgets you know, when it comes to the Pentagon. So we know that the money is there. We know that the, 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 the National Guard will be compensated. So why continue to push this narrative that the government is broke, that it can't even it can't even uh, afford to provide the monetary needs for the National Guard. 
So clearly they are speaking to a specific audience. My position is that the audience they are specifically speaking to is the right wing. So the more you get the right wing zealots to believe that in fact that the government is 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 uh is, is, is in the process of being destabilized, then the more that you encourage not only right wings in terms of organizing efforts, but you, you lend a certain bit of credibility to the organizing efforts because the whole point is that if they can effectively amass large and larger number of people for insurrections, then they can be successful. So it's a very very dangerous precedent that the media is setting but it's in line with keeping with propaganda. So I think it's important that we understand when we, when we listen to these, when we read these articles and listen to them on television, we understand there's always some implication behind the words that they use or the kind of, or how things get phrased. And so in this context, uh, clearly this notion that the government is so poor uh, that uh, it simply can't uh, afford to uh, provide for the National Guard is erroneous. After all, if you stop and think about it, the U.S. government is the only country in the world that can unilaterally arbitrarily print up money at will. It doesn't have to produce anything. It can just print up money. And so, therefore, this notion that, in fact, that the National Guard stands to, uh, 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 be, uh, to be, to be uh, um, negatively impacted by not having the funds to need is disingenuous. It's a lie. But clearly it's, it goes hand-in-hand with propaganda. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world in the community? Brother Moses. Are you with us, Brother Moses? Yes, um, Brother Africa. It's good to be here. Um, I want to emphasize that the Cuban Communist Party is dedicated to serving the masses of the Cuban people and looking out for the interests of the masses of the people, food, clothes, and shelter, etc. And as the U.S. government is just involved in Moses, because uh, they were well financed at uh, 
Lafayette Square, but they still couldn't get the huge masses of people out to uh, attack uh, the sovereignty of Cuba or to undermine the Cuban people. But I uh, am still concerned about the pandemic. Uh, The political unrest is caused in both Cuba, uh, South Africa, uh, and uh, the environmental impact that it's having on the work that that this global warming is having on uh, working class people, on poor people, on African people, and people of color. Also, the the pandemic and how uh, difficult it seems to be get the va- to get the vaccine vaccine out to Cuban people just not being able to have syringes and basic things because of this embargo. So I'm hoping that we'll be able to uh, shed light on that on the difficulties that the people are having and to get uh, shed some light and uh, bring the people together and to organize as Brother Hakeem and uh, everyone discusses, Brother Africa, uh, just thank you. But the real issue, again, is the pandemic and global warming, just impacting everyone everywhere. And uh, unless we vaccinate everyone, then we can't save ourselves. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. You're listening to Africa on the Move. We're going to take a revolutionary culture break, and when we come back, we will continue discussion, and then we will deal with our theme today, which is affecting human development and bodies. This is Africa on the Move. We'll be right back, and don't you go nowhere. Welcome to Pilgrim And to the buffalo Who once ruled a plain Like the vultures Circling beneath the dark clouds Looking for the rain Looking for the rain Just like the city that stagger on the coastline In a nation that just can't stand much more Like the forest buried beneath the highway Never had a chance to grow Never had a chance to grow And now it's winter, winter in America, yes, and all of the hills have been killed, sent away, yeah, but the people know, the people know it's winter. in America and ain't nobody fighting 
wicked side Don't punish me with brutality Talk to me so you can see Back to Africa on the Moon and souls from Africa. We're going to just continue our discussion on what's going on in our world and the community. And shortly we'll be discussing the theme tonight, which is affecting human development and bodies. We're talking about our bodies, our human beings. There are things going on on a daily basis that affect our bodies, that affect our development, and we need to be aware and conscious of it. We're going to try to um, I like some of these issues and possibilities. And we'd like for you to join in with us. So dial in at 323-679-0841. For we make that transition, we'll go back to Brother Haki. As we talk about what's going on in our world community, Brother Haki, are there any other things that may have came up this past week that you'd like to um, draw our listen or your attention to? Such as, I just found out Ronnie for all my panelists and listeners, all of these issues are they still dealing with this so-called virus and these shots are saying people may have to take more shots, booster shots. This one doesn't work, that one doesn't work. What is really going on? Do y'all really trust what y'all are hearing today as relates to the treatment of these um, so-called um, vaccination shots dealing with this issue of coronavirus? Brother Haki. Well, I think that 
Well, well, you know, Brother Africa, recently in Singapore, uh, uh, 75% of the people who, who um, relapsed, who took the, took the shots, uh, 75% of them came down with COVID-19 again. So clearly what we're being told in terms of how these vaccines supposedly work and how they actually work are two different things. Now, I'm not going to be repetitive in, 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 in raise what I raised last week in terms of, you know, um, uh, you know, a few uh, clevisites. I'm not going to do that. Um, you know, I think most people got the point. But the mere point that there's, there's something seriously wrong in terms of vaccines, and with all of these questions arising, it seems to me that, you know, uh, you know I'm, I'm not, listen, let me just say point blank. I don't tell people what to do or how they, what they should do. Uh, I say to people, research as much as you possibly can, learn as much as you possibly can, talk to doctors, talk to scientists, talk to professionals, you know, and you, you, you come to your own conclusion in terms of whether or not you should take that vaccine. But clearly, there's an enormous amount of uh, questions that remain with respect to the efficacy and effectiveness of those vaccines. And because those questions arise, then you, you, inevitably the question arises, you know, so then what is the real impact or potential impact on, 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 my, on the body, on the human body? What is the impact on, my, on, on the, you know, uh, the function you know, of the vital systems in my body? All those questions are relevant. And so I think that the, the many of these questions have to be asked, have to be answered. Unfortunately, many in the establishment, uh, you know, who advocate you taking these vaccines are not addressing these questions that people keep raising. And until they adequately address these questions that people are raising, then people are going to be hesitant to take that vaccine. And as it currently exists, you know, one of the things that, you know, that's this worldwide push uh, to penalize people for not taking the vaccine. Uh, you know, it seems to me that anything um, that is good for you, uh, you don't have to threaten people in terms of taking it. Uh, people took the measles vaccine simply because the vaccine was effective. The efficacy uh, in terms of effectiveness was, was, was there. And it was demonstrated in terms of people taking it and not have the kind of side effects associated with the COVID-19 vaccine. So it seems to me that if a vaccine is, is potent, if in fact it's effective, and it's not going to lead to uh, greater uh, uh, debilitation and destruction of the human body, and it seems to me that people be compelled to take it. So the mere fact that these people in position of power refuses to ask these very vital questions in terms of, you know, how this vaccine supposedly works, what's in it, uh, and why does it contribute to so many uh, uh, medical problems for people who take it, until they address those questions, then people are going to be resident, resident, excuse me, reticent to actually take it. And that's understandable. So I'll simply close with that, Brother Africa, and say that, you know, my position is that, listen, there's something fundamentally wrong in terms of this vaccine. Uh, I'm not sure, uh, you know, that um, what we're being told is on, on and up and up in terms of these, these vaccines, uh, you know. Um, and the mere fact that we talk to different people that have, you know, contrasting ideas in terms of not only how the vaccine sh- should work, but what, what the vaccine consists of, what's inside the vaccine. So clearly uh, there's something fundamentally wrong in terms of this whole uh, this, this, this whole this whole uh, dimension as it relates to, 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 to vaccines. And so until I can get some clarity in terms of the facts of what's going on, you know, uh, my position has always been, listen, study as much as you possibly can, learn as much as you possibly can, but I'm not going to advocate you take anything that's potentially uh, destructive uh, to, the hum- to, to the human body. And that's my position on that, Brother Africa, and I'll close with that. Brother Moses, you have respond to what has just been said and are there anything that took place the past week that you haven't shared that you'd like to share with our listed audience, Brother Moses? 
Now, Saka, I'd like to get you to announce your ticket again. You say you just came back from the uh, pro-Cuba rally up in D.C. where they had several young men from Miami walk 1,300 miles to go to D.C. to approach the president and ask him to lift the blockade. Um, give us a, 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 another summary of what you saw and what took place from your perspective, Brother Moses. Yeah, well, I got there late. I was, I was unfortunate. I, I, I didn't. Uh, well, the last one, I was, the last rally I went to, I was early for it, and they, met, they didn't show up. So I was trying not to be early, and I got there late. But anyway, um, the the Cusanos really were the main attraction when I got there. It was about four, four something, and uh, and um, they were all over the place. Um, and they, like I said, they were well financed. They had T-shirts. They they were um, chanting and, and microphones, etc. There was a, a substantial number of them, and I think the, the pro-Cuban people had left um, for the most part. I think I didn't, I couldn't, I didn't see any indications of it. And so, um, like I said, I was late, so I'm probably not the best person to, to talk to in terms of the pro-Cuban rally. Thank you. All right, Susan Noah, are there any things you'd like to share with the place the past week that you haven't shared yet with our listening audience? Susan Noah. Well, uh, thank you again, Brother Africa. I, uh, again, have been uh, just trying to stand in solidarity with the Cuban people and uh, uh, the reality that they're having difficulty receiving the resources to administer their vaccine. And this is having a, uh, this is uh, uh, causing death, suffering and death of Cuban citizens. And the uh, fact that this embargo, if it were lifted, would uh, resolve that issue entirely. But it seems that this week in the world, the big, Thank you. We are lost, Sister Eleanor. What we'll do, we hope we can bring her back. But in the meanwhile, what we're going to do real quick, we go to a quick commercial um, culture break. And when we come back, we'll start off with Brother Haki and our listening audience. We're going to address our theme, Affecting Human Development and Bodies. And we can discuss this article as we title, Cuban Government Announces New Economic Measures and on the import of food and medicines. How does that relate to this whole question of human development? And what do we take from this article in particular in terms of how Cuba addressed some of these important decisions and issues that are facing our people? So we will address the article when we come back. You'll listen to Africa on the Moon. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine Palestine. needs her freedom. 
Palestine. Needs our love, needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why. People cannot live, so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs her freedom. Palestine. Needs our love, needs our love, Palestine, Palestine, needs her freedom, Palestine, needs our love. the Fruit of Labor Singing Ensemble from North Carolina. We are the cultural arm of worker and civil rights organization Black Workers for Justice. Um, We came in from Raleigh, North Carolina, from Jacksonville, North Carolina, from Durham, um, and we are here because we support and we are part of the labor movement, but also part of the environmental justice movement, too. We are with UE150, the North Carolina Public Service Workers Union, local of the United Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers of America. In our communities, we fight on the job, but we also see the need to fight in our communities. There is no distance between the two. If we want justice on our jobs, we have to fight for justice in our communities. A lot of our communities face um, environmental hazards. Uh, Some of us come from communities that have super fun sites in the middle of them. Some of us are part of organizations, environmental organizations that fight against coal ash ponds, that fight, that are currently fighting against the um, Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which will come through predominantly of colors, communities of color, black and Native American communities. Um, so we're fighting against that. We're fighting against hog farms, uh, proliferation in North Carolina, and the dumping in our streams from being contaminated from hog farms. So we see the intersections between workers being poisoned on the job and workers being poisoned in our communities. We want to close with a song. So we wrote a song, Fruit of Labor wrote a song uh, about water contamination based upon struggles that were going on in North Carolina. So we're going to do a little bit of it right now. Okay. It's called Justice Flowing Down Like Water. Family drank from a deep clear well to the hearts and moved underground. Now the only story left to tell is innocence lost in community action. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down 
never see. Some say it's the mercury in the fish of Power plants causing you and me. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like What if mine had Twitter and all that civil rights talk, man, I wouldn't want to hear it. This integration been disintegrating. Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation. His last speech got him assassinated. Black business was booming. We wasn't just a consumer. Controlling our narrative. We have more marriages. And see what the damage did. They ain't that bad a bitch. And welfare did its way worse than the slavery. I'll never be an agent. I don't care what they pay me. Seemed like Nip had the same old story. If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory. Like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was a mystery. Supremacy will go the extent to keep their history alive. All I'm saying, if these leaders was alive, who be on the internet trying to divide? And use a hotel hustler, trying to be a people of that low vibe structure. Agree to disagree, and we ain't got to tear our own down. Argue in silence, or forever be our own downfall. All I want to say is that we're giving it away. Soul ain't for sale, and the devil is a fake. Argue in silence, but don't let it seal our fate. Fight behind doors, but don't ever show our face. Cause if mom had Twitter, Malcolm had Twitter. Be our own people do the trolling. Spill ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Cause the mom had Twitter. The Malcolm had Twitter. It be our own people do the trolling. Spill ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Sometimes the key to life you're looking for be right in front of you. Tried to show my man hidden colors, he said nothing new. I said, what if we've been lied to most of our freaking lives? Every year coming tonight, and you ain't speaking right, your arrogance precedes you. What if your faith did? I spoke to God on Wednesday, he said most of it's basic. Million dollar mindset to be flying, stay hungry. Hieroglyphic writing on walls you couldn't take from me. A man lay dead in the street today. I must have bumped my head and landed in 
We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. Before we went on our break, I think we have Sister Eleanor. We lost her. I think she's back. She was going to give us or articulate something she may have wanted to share with us in terms of what took place this past week as relates to what's going on in her world community. We're going to bring her back in. Sister Eleanor, can you hear me now? Yes, thank you, Brother Africa. Um, again, I, I I am very concerned about the pandemic and the impact that it's having on uh, people in the Southern Hemisphere, folks in Africa, in Central and South America, on the lack of vaccine availability to Cuban people, to the people of Palestine. I think this is no accident. And uh, again, uh, the uh, the globe is in waiting. Mother Earth should be our main priority. She's not waiting for us. She's flooding, she's burning, she's roasting, and the heat is rising. This may be the coolest summer that we've seen for a long time. Okay, thank, thank you. you, Sister Thank you, Sister Eleanor. What we're going to do right now, and you the listening audience, we'd like to encourage you to call in 323-679-0841. Uh, and to begin discuss the theme tonight, affecting human development and bodies. As we think about our theme in the context of the articles that were chosen, the first one, we actually Google to look up the article that was published on July 16, 2021. It's titled, Cuban Government Announces New Economic Measures on the Import of Food and Medicine. When we look at the article and read the article, uh, it's real interesting in terms of seeing how the Cuban government and its people, how they have taken on and addressed um, issues head on in terms of not only how they impact, impact them, but how they will collectively address them and help towards um, solving some of these concerns and needs. Brother Haki, Affecting human development and bodies. When we look at this article, what are some of the things or what stood out in terms of how the Cuban government and its institutions seem to be taking on the problems, particularly as it relates to the interest of human development and the people concerned? Brother Hackey, the mic is yours. Yeah. First, let me say that the, the intended uh, ill effects. Uh, by the embargo is having some impact on the Cuban on the Cuban economy. So we should first and foremost understand that this um, uh, this in, intentional destruction of human life is calculated. It's no mistake. It's actually what they're trying to do. In order to turn the Cuban people against this government, they are willing to sacrifice the lives of, of, of thousands upon thousands of Cubans in order to in order for their will to prevail. So clearly, when we talk about the the, the humanity, uh, clearly the United States is void of humanity, and the mere fact that it takes Russia and, and on some occasions China to actually assist Cuba in terms of its needs, in terms of providing for human needs of the Cuban people, speak values in terms of just how humane those societies are, as opposed to America. It's very interesting that society that claims that the uh, that the human rights is 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 is, is the standard bearer by which it lives. That it would in terms that it would in turn create a situation, create conditions to ensure that people don't have access to the things they need as human beings. 
So we should get that out of the way so we should understand this is all calculated. But the Cuban response to, to, the, to, this, to, this, you know, to this crisis is, is being magnificent. Uh, one of the things I really admire about the Cuban people, they're committed to their socialism. And they understand that one of the things that gets in the way in terms of achieving socialism is, is uh, you know, uh, individualism. So once you allow individualism to, to prevail, then inevitably what happens is that it's going to increase the level of exploitation in our society. So what the Cuban government is doing is that they have these small and middle-sized middle businesses. Uh, they will allow them to set their wages, but they'll still maintain control. In other words, the government is saying to those businesses that you will not be free to use COVID-19 as justification to, ex to, to exploit exploitation against your fellow Cubans. That's not going to happen. You can run your business. You can do what you got to do, but, you're, but we're going to have some stake in terms of how you, how you, how you manage business because this is a cue key in terms of perpetuating, you know, getting to, getting to a state of pure socialism in which, in which we're trying to achieve. So interestingly enough, if you stop and think about it, the same similar kind of uh, methodology, the same similar kind of philosophy uh, by the Chinese in terms of what they're doing. They allow you, they allow you to amass wealth, but if you can use that wealth in terms of to, to somehow, um, you know, um, control the state, they're simply not going to allow that. But they have a vested interest in making sure that uh, they're on their that they work in conjunction with these businesses to make sure that the proceeds from the businesses are used to benefit the entire society, not a small segment of that society. So I encourage. So I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm really happy to, you know, to, when I read, you know, about the Cubans' assistance when it comes to, you know, uh, mastering socialism. That is so you know, key. But one of the things in terms of the energy, you know, one of the things is that, um, you know, by the this criminal blockade, that then they really prevented Cuba from getting the kind of um, uh, resources and needs in terms of uh, 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 energy sources for, their, for the electrical power plants. And so things like gas, oil, and those kind of things, you know, uh, are important in terms of running a power plant. So the mere fact that the embargo makes it impossible for, to achieve those kind of things does have a very negative impact on its ability in terms of provide lighting for the people in Cuba. Conversely, it, created, it also creates a hardship for the Cuban government generally in terms of being able to, to actually in, enhances productivity in terms of, you know, producing those kind of things that the citizens in the country need. But uh, more importantly, though, Brother Africa, I think that, um, you know, when we talk about the, um, uh, the, um, the, um, the, 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 the spirit of, 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 of Cuba, uh, when you think about the, the fact that you've got these people who are adversely opposed, I mean, intimately opposed to the, to the proliferation of socialism who, who will work, with, with, with the United States for the sole purpose of undermining their own government, when you think about that kind of persistentness and the president's response to that kind of uh, uh, that kind of uh, that kind of mendacity, his response is to say, no, 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 we're not going to hate because Cuba is a loving society. So that speaks value, that speaks values in terms of the kind of society that Cuba is headed for, which is a which, which constitutes a very real threat because once you get people in the United States thinking in terms of on a humane level, get them thinking that you have a responsibility to your fellow your fellow human being, uh, then that means that that those that those that mindset, that philosophy would is is a real detriment to the proliferation of capitalism. And so the US ruling class must destroy that kind of philosophy and, and to the extent that exists in the minds of, of American people. And you know, in 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 the in, in brother after the mere fact, you know, that the Cuban government are talking about allowing people to bring in medicines and and, 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 and certain kinds of things in terms of um, 
alleviating the shortage only exists to, to the extent that the Cubans don't have the, the, the electrical power to 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 uh, create those kind of things like you know uh, like you know like medicines those kind of things analgesics you know you know stuff for hypertension and all that they have the capability of producing all of that. But what's lacking is the the, the the energy that you need in order to produce all those things. Cuba's quite capable of producing all those things themselves. But the U.S., because they recognize Cuba's ingenuity, understand that Cuba is in a position to create those things for themselves, the only way they can stop Cuba from, prevent, from, 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 from producing those kind of things is to destroy the energy sector, to make it not destroy it, but at least minimize the energy sector, to make it more difficult for Cuba uh, to uh, innovate those kind of things, because we're talking about a tremendous amount of energy that is needed in terms of the, the production of, you know, all kind of medical, uh, or medical, uh, or medical or cures. So clearly, you know, uh, I, I really respect the Cubans in terms of their humanity and their willingness to, to create a situation, to create conditions to say that even though we're going through this very difficult time, we still have a responsibility to one another, and we're going to pursue that responsibility. I can't say. I mean, what more can you just add to that other than say that these people are, are these people are, are are great. The example they set for the world, uh, the kind of things they do in terms of enrichment of humanity, those kind of things. I wish, even on a superficial level, existed in America. The bottom line is, the reality is, they don't. So Cuba represents a, 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 a existential threat to those positions of power in the United States, simply because you know uh, once people come to realization in America. That you depend on one another. That if you depend, on, if you work with one another, you could create you could create a much better world. And all of these problems that it, that persist, the poverty, the the lack of education, lack of shelter, all those problems that exist could be overcome if people work together. So so fundamentally, Cuba is an existential threat to those positions of power in America. But we have to take our hats off to Cuba in terms of its uh um its uh, uh determination in terms of you know uh, uh creating their best. Uh, social, best social, economic, political system of the world has ever known, and I close with that, brother Africa. Okay, since Eleanor, when you read this article, um, how do you transcend the theme affecting human development and bodies? How do you transcend the theme applied to this article in terms of how Cuba is taking on real issues that are affecting the country and giving the people the means to address it from a collective perspective. How do you view that, view how QA is dealing with it based upon this article? Sister, I don't know. Well, Cuba very much in the article has definitely addressed the impact that the embargo is happening, having on the, on the Cuban people. Um, and uh, as the article said, that uh, there have always been a certain amount of kilowatts, just to address the first issue of electricity and the blackouts. Well, that's a way of agitating the common person, and that helps create uh, social unrest. But as it, it was stated uh, in the article, that Cuba always sets aside a certain amount of uh, megawatts for hospital use and with the impact of the pandemic of the of the virus on the Cuban population it had to create uh, it was necessary to to make uh create new isolation centers for the sick and uh uh 
and that's what it does. I mean, the government, uh, its medical program uh, seems to um, take priority in the allocation of of uh, megawatts and the electricity. So Cuba's uh, vaccine is uh, supposedly is uh, at 100%. Uh, efficacy uh, against death from the COVID-19, according to experts on July 17th, that was mentioned in the article. And right now, to in an effort to uh, relieve, get some relief, because when you don't have very basic medications, we saw this with the Iraqi war in 92, when people don't have access to contraceptives, to antibiotics, to their uh, blood pressure medication, to their diabetic medication, uh, this is this 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 causes uh, death, unnecessary death, um, and this compacted with the pandemic, it's amazing that the people are are, are hanging on, but the fact that they have lifted uh, all tariffs, so anyone bringing in anything, any way they can get in their medications, they're willing to accept it. Um, among the measures taken to minimize the impact of the crisis faced by the Cuban population in terms of essential products, the, the Prime Minister announced that the duty-free imports of food, medicine, and toilet to- toiletries will, uh, with no exceptions, uh, help to uh, address the crises. But the real crisis, again, is the embargo. And he also affirmed that it was approved by the government to authorize uh, these exceptions on, uh, on a temporary base, uh, basis to import food, toiletries, and medicines by passengers with uh, with accompanying luggage. Now, that's a phenomenal thing. So that means you, if someone's coming in, I interpreted that to mean that they would be free to bring in medicine and without uh, limit and uh, duty-free import value until uh, December 31st, uh, 2021. Now, uh, uh, the airlines are the ones that, set the limit in terms of weight uh, for passengers, but the measure measure was taken, uh, according to the article, Monday, July 19th, required that uh, products uh, that that I mentioned, the antibiotics, these other things, uh, to be separated from the rest of the personal luggage and that there be an exemption uh, from any duties when you're bringing in this kind of thing. This, I think it also included food products. Um, and uh, this is what a revolutionary government, when it's being pressed with an un, uh, outrageous embargo, has to do. And the people are coping quite well. Uh, keep in mind, again, these are, they're going through uh, blackouts throughout the country. Um, they are not able to import the fuel and the things that n- they need due to the embargo. So I agree with uh, Brother Hakeem, and the article was very insightful. 
Uh, you can see the Cuban people are, are well organized. They talk about, uh, quite frankly, that uh, they didn't even allude to it. They spoke, uh, frankly, about supplies and financing, uh, <clears throat> and that mainly motivated the the financing and the impact. And what's happened is motivated by the impact of the pandemic and the increase in prices due to the U.S. economic sanctions. So the Cuban people are being pressured by the capitalists because of their limited access to resources. So uh, as Brother Akeem said, maybe they'll have to uh, get support from Russia or or China because uh, they're running into a lot of dead ends with these U.S. sanctions when so many European capitalists, these social imperialists, they're international. So they're incorporated. Many of them have subsidiaries in the United States, so they very well can't ignore the sanctions. You know, I'm talking about the people in Switzerland and the Netherlands and other countries. They're doing business here, so they have to abide by U.S. laws. So this has caused the people to be of Cuba to, to suffer further because of their limited uh, access to markets, uh, to uh, international markets. So this, again, speaks to why it is so important that the uh, <clears throat> anything that relates to this virus right now on planet Earth uh, be allowed to move from country to country without tariffs, without any in, without any implications at all for us to ignore this, uh, to give exemption for what is normally called proprietary knowledge and, and to move on. So I found this article quite insightful, and I realized the Cuban people are suffering due to the pandemic and the embargo. So what we can do is stand in solidarity with the Cuban people and ask that this, as a U.S. citizen, that this embargo be lifted. You know, Brother Moses, I find it very interesting when you read this article and look at the behavior of the Cuban government and their institutions, how humanistic they are and the concerns of their other, of the well-being of their other brothers and sisters. Uh, one of the things in terms of being aware of the statistical data, demographics of each community by region, block by block, and the demographics of people traveling and moving and may not uh, be in the same areas where they were once before, how it may affect the distribution of the resources that, that they allocated to certain areas, but to make sure that those who are moved to new areas where the Cuban may not be aware of, and see how means and stuff to try to address that basic need. I find that real caring and real um, real concerning. Versus when you look at pandemics that have taken place in this country, for e, I mean, for example, like um, the Katrina incident, it seems that uh, clearly this government was out of touch, out of touch of the realities of the people, out of touch of what is this in the community. I'll attach to that willingness want to come to the aid of people. Your response, Brother Moses, to the article and what I just stated. Brother Moses, your response. Yes, Brother. I first, I just 
I'm just saying in solidarity with the Cuban Revolution and the Cuban Communist Party and the Cuban people um, who long for liberation from the yoke of U.S. imperialism. And, it, and it's my duty as a as a revolutionary and as a uh, person born here in the beast you know, to do everything I can to 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 hasten that day when that when they won't when that foot is not on them and I'm understanding that also understanding that nothing reactionary is going to fall of its own accord it has to be toppled and the Cuban people understand that and um, and we have to get organized um, I, I say it every day um, um, Cuban people are organized and we have to get organized and because uh, we have a task, and this task requires organization. And uh, and so, but I stand in solidarity. The U.S. The U.S. is going to do everything he can to discredit anything progressive, anything socialist, anything that's really democratic, really. And uh, and so we we are in a struggle for a new democratic society, and 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 uh, that's the bottom line. Uh, um, there's details and facts, and uh, you know certainly a concrete analysis, concrete conditions is the life and soul of Marxism, and so you know we have to look at the concrete situation and, and deal with it according to what needs to be done. And uh, but the, but we can't lose sight of the big picture, and that's and that's the that's what we got to unite around. We got to keep politics in command, and uh, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Let's continue our discussion down the road, affecting human development and bodies. And when we talk about our bodies, the human body, uh, there was another interesting article we encourage our listening audience to check out and read. They're written by George D. Rowski. Uh, the title of the article is Genetically Modified Babies Are Still a Bad Idea. WHO committee. It has ended with the conclusion that new guidelines are restricted but often ways to move forward with related research. Now when we talk about this question of affecting human development and talk about the impact of our bodies, this article raises many possibilities as well as maybe some future realities of our science dealing with bio, bio you know, biometrics you know, about uh, uh, chemistry in terms of how you can impact the cells, the emeralds, and what they can do, not only for the present generation, but future generation and the makeup of human beings. It raised some interesting questions and issues, uh, Brother Haki. Um, when you read this article, I think the real question they raised in this article is why genetically modified babies are still a bad idea. Did you arrive at that conclusion, or why should we be concerned from the issues, or what was some of the concerns that came out of this article as relates to human development that we should and need to be aware about? Because it can be used as a tool to genocide, oppress people, or it can be used as a tool for science or purposes of science, and maybe some of the ills and sickness that people may encounter. What did you take from this article, Brother Haki? I got it 
I got to say, Brother Africa, from an ethical point of view, uh, this notion in terms of gene, you know, genome, genome therapy, the sole purpose of uh, creating a better human being, I think that's uh, you know, the way of getting around it. That's, that is a very dangerous kind of concept. Uh, one of the things that when you talk about, you know, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, editing the human genome, the problem is as much that people don't understand in terms of what makes up human beings. Uh, you know, we understand the, the nature of, you know, uh, 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 molecules, understand the nature of cells, we understand the nature of, uh, you know, uh, these things interacting with one another. But the problem is that uh, we don't have a, 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 a precise understanding in terms of how these things interact with one another. So when you start tempering around with that kind of biochemistry and you're trying to, in, in, in trying to create a person that's, say, more intelligent, uh, what are the potential uh, side effects from trying to create a person who's more intelligent? Well, you may succeed in creating a person who's more intelligent, but you might create a person who's much more, much more violent, much more antisocial, uh, or, or, or someone who's homicidal in nature. Uh, so, so you, there's not unknowns when you, when you enter in that kind of uh, that, in that kind of arena. So, I think China was right. So, when that, when that, when that doctor. Um, uh, in China, when he when he innovated, when he engaged in genome therapy and created those twin girls, I think that China was absolutely correct in terms of punishing him because he should have been punished. And the problem is that this, and, and, and the broader question is this, Brother Africa, you know, one of the things that when you start talking about technology, which is not a bad thing, but technology without without conscious growth is a very dangerous formula. So it seems to me when technology outstrips, outstrips consciousness, then you got the potential for a lot of bad things to happen, and that's what happened. So this guy decided that he's going to do that simply because he could. Well, doing something simply because you could doesn't mean you should. And so the problem is that you know uh, there's so many unknowns, and, and, and one of the things when we talk about you know um, when we talk about uh, life. Uh, there was so much uncertainty in terms of just what is it that defines life. Uh, that's still a very philosophical question. Now, those who take a position that when you talk about life, essentially what, what we perceive is life is no more than the, than, 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 than the reflection of energies, you know, in energies. And so what we're seeing is not the self, but what we're seeing is energy in motion. And so it becomes very philosophical. So so this, this becomes a very difficult question to assess. And so once you start tampering with those things which you have no understanding of, uh, in, uh, inevitably, you know, a very, very, thing, very bad thing is going to happen. So my concern is that, again, when you start talking about lack of consciousness and you talk about putting technology in the mix, there's a potential to abuse that technology for the sole purpose in terms of the empowerment of a few at the expense of the many, or to use that technology for the sole, for the oppression or repression of a, of, of of, a, of, a, of people, then clearly it has very, very, very negative connotations, and so for that reason, I would wholeheartedly oppose, you know, any, that, you know, that type of um, uh, medical intervention, simply because the risk was simply too high. Okay, so I'll know your take on this whole question of science and maybe biochemistry and splitting of genes and embryos and. The kind of changes, the influence you can have on human human development. What you take from this article, Sister Eleanor? 
Well, biotechnology is out of control, and and the fact that the article discussed the World Health Organization in 2019 taking action to try to establish some guidelines. The the reality is that uh, the World Health Organization and and governments around the world are going to have to work together to put some type of moratorium on this type of biotechnology. Um, the the as Brother Hakeem said, it's dangerous and outrageous. How would it affect indigenous people? And if you're talking about, uh, they were talking about. Uh, sickle cell disease and, and targeting a certain population in West Africa to uh, have some kind of biotechnological intervention in sickle cell. Well, I, I, I don't know about that. Um, we have so much to consider in terms of ethics, uh, religious, faith activities. Uh, so this is something that I would hope that we would have a global moratorium, that governments, uh, as China, would uh, discourage this. We are not, as a planet, sophisticated enough to deal with the reality of global warming and handle a pandemic, certainly we're not ready for this type of biotechnology. We do not have the sophistication to handle it. This is a capitalist, money-driven world, and many, the masses, will lose in this type of biotechnological area. We don't even know where the, the, the COVID virus, the COVID-19 came from, so we need to... Just make sure there's some type of moratorium. I, I'm the person pushing moratoriums on on commercialization of space, on uh, and also on this biotechnology. I, I found the article interesting um, it, that uh, the U.S. National Academy of Science weighed in, the U.K.'s Royal Society weighed in, the National Academy of Medicine weighed in. And and I understand that these twins would have died if it hadn't been for this Chinese doctor's intervention. It's been uh, something that's been been discussed as intervention for the last few years. I understand he was sentenced to three years in jail. That that's a modest sentence, and uh, uh, but it was a well deserved uh, action taken by the Chinese people. And again, um, I don't know, and I agree with the article. I don't know whether or not, uh, the world health organization has the political strength, uh, the flexibility, uh, the leadership, uh, to, to, to handle this, uh, their, their reputation is often in question. And, uh, and the power to exercise the scientific and moral leadership that you would need, that's needed right now. So, again, I think uh, I'm not discarding the World Health Organization. I am supporting them in, in, in taking a leadership role and trying to uh, take the proprietary knowledge from companies like Moderna and making it available to everyone on earth, but they haven't been successful at that. We haven't been successful at getting the billions of uh, 
vaccines available to people in Africa, Haiti, uh, Palestine. We can't help seem to get the basic resources, uh, uh, 300 or so basic materials that Cuba needs to produce its own pharmaceuticals to Cuba. So we're certainly, as a globe, not prepared for biotechnology. Uh, so there should be a moratorium and more research. Brother Moses, talk to us. Brother Moses, talk to us. What's your take on this? Okay. Um, um, I want to get to the subject matter. The subject matter, the overall theme, um, um, and I want to say that we're just matter that thinks. There's nothing sacred about skin color. You know, how that matter gets divided and distributed is, is a, what we call political economy. And uh, we're, all, we're all human and have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We need compassion, empathy, and caring for all people. And, you know, ideologically, one, one must, one must uh, be able to discern who's telling the truth and who's lying and uh, who's, who has a tendency to always be uh, with the conspiracies and uh, and we we learn we learn certain things and learn certain idiosyncrasies and traits and um, hopefully we can apply that to to uh, our resources and uh, use it in the best interest of the people because politics should stay in command of all questions. It's the question in the, in the question of. Um, of what is what is needs to be done at a given moment in time, and the, the revolution uh, requires certain responsibilities and certain behavior, and therefore, it's a it's incumbent to really have study, study, study past revolutionaries and uh, how they dealt with various questions. And uh, try to stay up to the minute. As actually, try to stay up to the minute. And uh, but the the people and the people alone will make history. I I've learned that. And so sometimes it seems like we're just waiting. Um, we're doing everything we can. Uh, we think, and at least in our minds, but it's still we're waiting on people to say, "Hey, that that's reality. That's what's going on. That he's just." Let's let's get up, let's get about uh, the business of reorganizing this state and all that that requires, and uh, so that we have a state that serves our interests. And that's that's the goal. That's the goal. Of, when all the dust clears every day, that's the goal. And, and we have to keep politics in command. Um, I mean, I, I, sometimes jobs can become fetters. On the revolution, if, if, I don't know if you understand what I'm saying, but you know this this the situations where where the ideological constructs within the organization requires revolutionary action, which means internally if there's going to be some changes one way or the other. Uh, for, you know, there's there's got to be a qualitative change made. And um, everybody doesn't recognize what needs to be done at a given moment. So 
so everybody's not privy to to the information that is required in order to know what the decision that needs to be made in order to make the next critical step possible. Because we're going through stages. Um, right now we're in a new democratic stage. But um, the people, I'm determined that you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. And that's that's what I'm hoping and 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 basing the future upon. And I I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, and going to Brother Anthony. As we talk about the article, genetically modified babies are still a bad idea. WHO WHO committee. Brother Anthony, uh, having somewhat a, a scientific background and field science, when you read this article. Um, what came to your mind in terms of the pluses and the minus of looking at this whole idea of experimenting with human genes and the whole biology of human beings? Your thoughts on this article, Brother Anthony? Uh, my thought on uh, genetically uh, genetic modification in general is that um, that it uh that 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 it it seems to be uh it seems to be the ultimate objective of eugenesis in other words the uh you know the uh uh in an attempt to produce the perfect human being so to speak uh and also to uh you know, uh, in the attempt to, you know, um, you know, produce someone that's perfect. And, uh, you know, and that goes against uh, dialectics and also nature. And, uh, you know, and, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, uh, societies advance by accepting, by tolerating and accepting uh people as they are uh you know without uh this i i mean this uh this uh, notion of the ideal you know human being comes from uh you know your uh european concepts of what the perfect person is you know so to speak and I think it, and I think it, uh, you know, I think it has uh, disastrous implications, and could lead to, um, you know, uh, you know, th- uh, events like what happened, uh, you know, during the, the Nazi era, uh, in between the, the imperialist wars one and two. And uh, I don't think it's, uh, you know, something that should be pursued. Now, research in order to come up with better ways of treating diseases and, uh, uh, you know, and, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, other, uh, you know, uh, misfunctions, um, you know, uh, that is, is uh that is a different situation but i think when it comes to, at the end of the day we have to accept human beings 
you know, for what uh, as they are, every human being uh, as well as uh, every creature on Earth, you know, they have a contribution to make uh, toward uh, nature. Okay, thank you, Brother Anthony. Um, I would like to just read this just for all the panelists who would maybe like to know how to respond to it. When I read this article that I saw where you talk about based upon the research, there was a discovery of maybe a cure for HIV. You can you have a cure for HIV and whether or not um, when we talk about this whole question of research, when we do research and discover things, many times once the gene is at the bottom, um, you have a lot of forces who may want to regulate others, but they may not want to be regulated. So I just wondering, based upon what they learned from this scientific research, you think organizations like uh, WHO and others, particularly in the West, may say at one end, we think we should put a, a, a spot or a pause to this, while at the same time, they individually pursuing the research that they just recently came or recently was, was discovered by the research that was done by the scientists in China. How do you ensure, like Brother Anthony said earlier, many research, scientific research that were done in Germany on uh, the Hitler administration regime, they didn't throw that research away. They continue to use that and use that tool for their own self-interest. So how do we protect or safeguard that this won't happen this time, um, Brother Hackey? I have you to start off response to that possibility. You're right. Uh, even though they're talking about a moratorium, the bottom line is that uh, states are very much interested in the findings of this research. Make no mistake about it. Because one of the things I think we have to come to grips with is that uh, capitalism creates a very competitive world. And in the process of creating all this, all this competition, in, inevitably you have you have enemies and friends. And so one of the things you want to do is protect yourself against your perceived enemies. So the more information you have, the more you're in a strategic position to protect yourself from the enemies. And that's no that's no that's no accident. You know, uh, you know that uh, when when we when we talk about U.S. foreign policies and we, when we think about all the people who are adamantly opposed to U.S. foreign policies, see America as an adversary. They see America as the enemy of the world. And so, therefore, they understand that the potential exists where America will actually get hacking access to that research to use it for their own ends to further the oppression of people around the world. And so, therefore, those governments understand that, so it's in their interest that they, at least at the very minimal, understand, you know, you know how this technology is going to be applied, potentially how could they use it in terms of impacting their, impacting their, their communities. So, therefore, in that sense, so when we talk about this competition, then we understand that, uh, yes, uh, this moratorium they talk about, ideally, philosophically, it sounds good, but the bottom line, given the way the societies are organized, and particularly when you talk about the U.S. being at, at the top in terms of setting policies for the world, then you've got to understand uh, that the potential is too great, uh, you know, for the U.S. to use that information for the sole purpose of, for the, um, for the um, potential exploitation of the, rest, exploitation for the rest of the world. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not excluding China in terms of, of uh, in terms of using the same information for their own for their own for their own gains. Uh, at this point, at least China, uh, at least you know, if if in fact the 
if someone engaged uh, in fact that China did in fact uh, use this information for the sport, for you know for personal gain, economic gain, then at least I think of some kind of realistic discussion in terms around the uh, real uh, problems in terms of using that technology. I think China is more in a position to actually sit there and listen in terms of saying, well, well, maybe you have a point there, and maybe in that context be able to sort of uh, minimize uh, or, or if not to 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 table that 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 uh, that uh, the benefits from that uh, uh, the benefits from the uh, from from that from that research. Uh, but I'm not sure that they would, given the history of the United States, that if they have access to the information, that it won't be used to to to, to weaponize. Uh, that, informa- that, that, that information against the world. And so that is a fundamental problem that I think that we got. So we're talking about competition. And so the competition itself in the, in the context of capitalism would spur people to, 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 to gain that information because it gives them an, an advantage. And that is the fundamental reality. And so this is a problem that we're confronted with. Nonetheless, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, now that it's genius out of the bottle, as you say, Brother Africa, uh, the bottom line is that you know, uh, you know, all society can do is do the best it can in terms of trying to um, trying to um, prevent it from spreading. Brother Anthony, genius at the bottom. What do you think? How do you do? Where from using it? And Just I think ahead. the only the only way to end, um, you know. Uh, uh, you know this uh, the exploitation of human beings by one another is to put an end to all forms of exploitation of human beings by human beings. In other words, to defeat capitalism in all of its manifestations. Uh, I think that's the ultimate solution. And that's the only way to uh, uh, to manage, you know, this sort of uh, research into uh, genetic modification. So, Eleanor, your response? Genius at the bottom. Well, well, I understand that uh, this uh, doctor, he... uh, Use something called the CRISPR gene uh, uh, editing tool to modify these two embryos. Now, I didn't understand whether the 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 parent was HIV or what, but the end result is that now these uh, two twins are immune to the HIV virus. But again, as we were saying, and as your one of your guests said earlier, he was talking about contemporary society in in the in the what was the southern Sudan and in uh, um, and uh, um, uh, the uh, Africa that country. Uh, the name escapes me right now in uh, northern Africa. And how we enslave each other literally. Well, I see this as being another form of exploitation, and we are not able to handle this. Of course, uh, they discussed the possibility of of uh, eliminating the uh, sickle cell uh, gene. Well, who's going to afford that? And the big issue is who can pay for it? And everything on this planet Earth right now doesn't deal with 
equality, doesn't deal with human rights. Healthcare isn't a human right. It's not a global human right that we all agree on and complete access for everyone to health care. We don't even have global standardization of health care. We don't even have hospital in this capitalist country. We don't even have, we have limited standards for health care from hospital to hospital, meaning patients aren't all treated equally. It's as equal as your dollar, as equal as your class, as equal as your standard uh, of your of your class strata. And so I see this as very dangerous. I see it as uh, uh, we definitely need a moratorium. And once again, not only do we need a global moratorium that the World Health Organization is attempting to put in place, we are going to have to address this from a nation by nation and, and, and have national moratoriums. Each government have a moratorium uh, against this type of research. The only people that may be able to do it humanely right now may be Cuba, but Cuba doesn't have access to antibiotics and to uh, diabetic medication or to oncology medication. So they're not in a position right now. So again, um, we know how we enslave each other. We know we are still enslaving each other. We know how we exploit each other. We know about uh, uh, organ harvesting and what a business that is right now. So we need to uh, stand back, and I think this type of biotechnology can be very harmful because all people are of value. You can't go, there's a, 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 someone who's uh, autistic who just won some great world prize and wrote this book, and someone asked him, is something wrong with you? How do you feel about yourself? If you could do genome research, and they asked him, and, not, and, and they could have made you differently, would you have selected that? The man said, no, no. There is perfection in all people. There is beauty and glory in all people. We all contribute so much to this wonderful, cute quilt of mankind. It's like a weaving. We can't pull one thread without damaging the others. So, and as Hakeem said and other speakers said, you know, we're going by a very narrow European concept of what perfection is in the world. And, and and we all have too much to give to allow for genetic engineering and biotechnology to create what someone calls the perfect human being. Now, if biotechnology can eliminate cancer, maybe that's something to look at. If biotechnology is going to eliminate sickle cell, eliminate rheumatoid arthritis, eliminate lupus, Maybe that's something to look at, but I don't think we're there yet. And all I see this potentially is just another way for the capitalists to enrich themselves and protect or enhance a certain class in what they believe is perfection. And I think that's dangerous for all of humanity. Okay, we're bringing up Brother Moses. Well, Moses, where are you at on this issue of how do we deal with the possibility 
But since the genie is out the body, body out the bottle, how do we stop others from illegally using this technology? How do we monitor them? How do we trust them? Or should we trust them? We should take on that, brother Moses. Yeah, well, we need we need um, uh, it's an ethical problem here um, in terms of you know um, professional conduct and and um, what is acceptable and what is unacceptable behavior, and um, so that's what we have to start there at that point and and come to some kind of agreement about that, as a, and have that organizationally. Um, um, ahead to, but like this, this, this doctor, um, you know, he, he, I guess, you know, some people feel like if you can't, I don't know why they do things, scientists, scientists get into this discovery thing and, um, and they get into their field and their expertise and whatever. And next thing you know, we got a hydrogen bomb and we got Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, you know, so, I mean, there's got to be some kind of, um, I don't know, morality. I don't know what it is that uh, to govern people in terms of tinkering with with, with, um, the basics of life and the, Independence of life, 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 life uh, species, and whatever. Um, uh, I don't, I don't. Uh, obviously, they jailed them because because the dominant uh, um, philosophy is that he was wrong, and and uh, and uh, and you know, it's it's it's. It's really, really uh, uh, it's, it's, I, I, I was against the hydrogen bomb. I, I'm against the hydrogen bomb. I, I, so obviously, I'm against this too. But uh, but these, you know, it's just scientists going at it. I don't know. I'm gonna leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, and. Make a transition when we talking about every act has a purpose, and we should try to understand the act and the purpose. And even this question looking at nature, how some societies have viewed nature as a, as a, as a means of warfare. This article that is titled, A New Study Shows That Poor Communities and Communities of Color Are Exposed to higher temperatures all across the U.S. as the subtext of poor neighborhoods are up to seven degrees hotter than the richer ones. Now, when we talk about our environment, a lot of things, we are just totally unconscious of how our environment are influencing us and impacting us. Sister Eleanor, you read this article. From your perspective, how are our environment impacting us as it relates to temperature, what is your take when you read this article, Sister Eleanor? Uh, I, it was a it's very interesting article, and it, it wasn't news to me, quite frankly, that uh, uh, communities of color and uh, poor communities across this country are hotter than everywhere else. 
Um, we we know where there's a lot of concrete and there is a, a, a great density that the temperatures are are at a higher level. We also know about the dumping and the poor management of our waterways and our environment is uh, what we are all fighting. And we had normally thought that we could use minority communities in the United States as dumping grounds and, and landfills, and you'll find those near minority communities. All of these raise the geothermal level of the Earth's temperature. And when you're using, uh, have a community that may be very near uh, um, a landfill and you're not, or, uh, you know, I call some landfills uncontrolled composting. You know, if you ever composted, you'll notice that uh, sometimes you're, you're composting and you'll notice it'll smell like ammonia. Well, you're creating ammonia. How many people know they need to place hay or, or shredded leaves to lower the pH to eliminate that ammonia? Well, I believe developers, and I've discussed this before, that developers and everything that's being built in this capitalist economy right now is being built on the back of the work of laborers from 70 years ago, 50 years ago or more, the entire infrastructure. And the communities that we see existing, public housing communities, subsidized housing are made with the smallest materials, the cheap, well, not small, but cheap materials and incredible density. And uh, before we began using all these toxic materials that we're using now, we were using uh, concrete. Uh, and uh, concrete uh, produces a lot of radiant heat we're using an excessive amount of asphalt, and uh, we're, we were covering playgrounds with asphalt. We were covering our playgrounds with our artificial turf. We we don't uh, we haven't been focusing on growing green, our com- green communities, and especially in poorer communities where there's very little equity or home ownership or. Uh, businesses who are renters, and we have little, we don't have uh, smart growth. We're not building gardens and art centers and schools and health clinics and child care facilities. We're busy uh, building uh, sidewalks and steel benches to make sure the homeless are as uncomfortable as possible. And uh, poor communities are exploited. Uh, We use the cheapest, most dangerous materials in the development of poor communities. And we provide very uh, limited amounts of green space. And wherever there's a lack of green space, a lack of trees, uh, you're going to find... uh, extreme temperatures, whether it be extreme heat or at, at other times it may now in the future be extreme cold. You're going to see both of those fluctuations. But these uh, these droughts may be in the poor community now, but they're going to be coming in a community near you. So the bourgeoisie and the ruling class, they're trying to explore 
space, thinking they're leaving us behind, some of them. But nope, we have, we need to protect the earth and uh, change our behavior to reduce our carbon footprint. And this can only be done, Brother Africa, by uh, making policy changes, legislative changes, putting in economic incentives to green the environment. And, and of course, as individuals, there's a lot that we can do, but it's something greater that we as a society have to do. And that's done through government and through leadership, proper leadership, environmental leadership. Sister Eleanor, we know Brother Anthony this concept of social engineers. You know, the city developers and urban developers, they have demographics on the people, they have the social economic status of the people. And when you design these cities, it seems like an mountain mistake, a known thing exists that may be more detrimental to certain groups than others. What do you make of that reality as you read this particular article? Because definitely, with the different degrees of the heat, it can have a health impact on people, and it does. So what do you take from this article, Brother Anthony? Yes, Uh Certainly, uh, I think uh, I concur with the, uh, with several of the points Sister Eleanor uh, made. I think, uh, and I think, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, the root of the problem is uh, the capitalist nature of society, which uh, which which is the emphasis on maximizing profit, even at the expense of. Uh, uh, you know, uh, health and, uh, you know, and uh, human life, as long as it's not the human life of the ruling class, of course. And, uh, and uh, you know, and, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the areas where wealthier people live have more green space than, er- than areas where poorer people live. In uh, you know, in this society, and uh, you know, and uh, let's see, and while uh, a lot of uh, people, poor people, live in uh, concrete jungles, so to speak, with a lot of asphalt around and what have you, a lot of a lot of uh, wealthier people, they live in uh, in in, uh, in in spacious landscapes with a lot of green space. And uh, that makes a Brother difference Anthony. in terms of people's overall health. Yes, yeah, so I should talk a little bit about the concept of a green space and how does it really impact on the people, on the people' health. Sure. Um, let's see. Um, well, let's see. Uh, the more green space you have, there's uh, there's the benefit of. Uh, uh, Green plants uh, generate more oxygen, and therefore they absorb some of the carbon dioxide uh, that's uh, uh, that's generated by human beings, and uh, so uh, so it creates a a, a healthier environment. Uh, the the uh, green space is important. And uh, in a lot of urban areas, that's, ca- that's minimized 
by, uh, you know, things like asphalt paved uh, uh, playgrounds instead of for grass because it's cheaper to maintain. And uh, so it, uh, you know, it's a social, political, economic uh, phenomena uh, in terms of the way the environment is treated. And uh, uh, green spaces, things like, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, lawns, grassy sidewalks, plants, you know, and uh, that sort of thing. All of those are very helpful to maintain, to sustain a healthy environment. And uh, where those are rare, like in uh, in uh, urban areas or areas that are near manufacturing facilities, and there are no plants to absorb uh, some of the pollution and uh, uh, that's generated. It uh, it makes uh, uh, for horrible conditions for human habitation, and um, and uh, areas that are close to landfill, as uh, Eleanor correctly pointed out, there is the uh, that uh, that the, the, there's uh, uh, ammonia generated, which is not good for the brain to be uh, inhaling. A, a lot of uh, you know um, uh, 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 ammonia compound or ammonia gas. So it it, it, it is a major uh, a major concern, and it's a bit and it's a uh, and it's a major problem in all capitalist countries, uh, especially uh, countries that are as uh, highly industrialized as the U.S. Okay, brother Haki. They tell you what you don't know won't hurt you, but reading this article seems that what you don't know may kill you. What you take from this article, brother Haki? Yeah, I think I, I think it's it's part and partial of a functional capitalism. Uh, one of the things we talk about these heating islands. I think it's important to understand that not only are we talking about the absorption of heat and then the uh, these as for the still actually radiating that heat, but understanding. Uh, in addition to that, then you got a situation where you got people literally piled upon one another in terms of maximizing profits. So, the, what is the best interest of human beings has never been a consideration as far as capitalists concerned, and so that is reflected in terms of the kind of le- living patterns that people have to deal with, you know, uh, you know, in your in your in your cities. And so, no one is surprised that when you talk about differentials between you know the heat that afflicted upon wealthy neighborhoods. Uh, versus uh, neighborhoods of color, even when they're the same income, then we understand that even in that situation that the, there's still a difference in terms of the level of heat those uh, communities have to endure. So clearly, you know, that's part and parcel of how capitalists operate. But one thing, so when you talk about solution to the problem, uh, one of the problems is that, you know, it's easy to, to, to imply that uh, all you have to do is go in the house and crank up your air conditioning and everything is okay. But the bottom line is that for working people or poor people, you have to pay a high percentage of their salary for air conditioning. And so that in itself is prohibited. So that in itself prevents a lot of people from actually, they, they can't afford to run the air conditioning all day. So that's the reality of it all. Superimposed, superimposed upon the fact that when we talk about in terms of how utilities operate, 
uh, their interest is the, their interest is providing you know re- returns for their shareholders. That means that if you're behind on your behind on your utility bills, uh, you know what happens? Your, your utility gets cut. Uh, they don't care if you're late. It gets cut. It's very very simple. And so therefore, poverty is not a justification in terms of you know being late. So clearly, you know when we talk about the kind of um, uh, uh, philosophy that governs capitalism, the kind of indifference that exists as relates to capitalism takes itself out when we talk about heating. So no one should be surprised. And one of the things also, and finally I conclude this point, I think one of the things is that when you talk about wealthier people, when you talk about where they have these have, have, have landing zone landing land zones, they actually stipulate that only you know uh, you know a certain acreage of land can sustain a home. So they, in fact, what they're doing is they're making sure there's adequate space, not only to prevent people from piling on one another, but to make sure there's adequate green, uh, like grass and trees, uh, that surround the property. And so in that context, people who are wealthy are much, much more protected. And I'm sure there's some in the more middle class who say, well, hey, I live in the suburbs, so I don't have a problem. I got, you know, I got trees, <laughs> I got trees, so I got trees and grass, so I'm okay. Well, you have to take that in relative terms. Uh, in terms of the cooling impact, uh, you can't compare it to someone who lives in a mansion, you know, in a, in, a, in a rustic part of the state, uh, was surrounded by trees and grass versus someone who lives in the suburbs who got some trees and some grass. The impact in terms of heating is much more devastating when it comes to that person in the suburbs relative to that person who lives in a rustic part of the state uh, in, a, in, a, in a giant mansion. So clearly, you know, this is part and parcel of how, how capitalism operates. And so no one should be surprised at the kind of indifference to human life. It's just part and part for the course. Well, family, let's take a quick break. and we come back, we're going to entertain one more article for the day as it relates to affecting human development and our bodies. And then we will do our closing. You are listening to Africa on the Move. Don't you go nowhere. We'll be right back.
we hear you. Mama Africa, what you that be no me? Mama Africa, what you that be no we? Be coming to all Africans. Let's get organized. Let's fight for Pan-African. Pan-Africanism. Let's free Mama Africa and unite it totally. Let's liberate it totally. And let's create a scientific social society where individuals can become an end within itself and not a means to an end. Where Africa will be in position to make its contribution to make a better humanity for all kind. Yes, we hear you, Mama Africa. We're coming, and we welcome you, everybody else, to Africa on the Move. Today, we're discussing affecting human development in our bodies. Right now, we're going to close out this program with this last important article as relates to our theme tonight. And we start off, I guess, we start off, and we left off Brother Moses. I think we left off last time discussing how the environment can be structured in a way where it damages to human beings, particularly in poor communities. I don't think we gave you a chance to shine in on the discussions of Brother Moses. We're going to give you your time on the sun. What do you think about this last article that we were just discussing, Brother Moses? Okay, um, uh, the, you're talking about the heat article, article on the heat. That's correct. Okay, yeah, I, I thought that people covered it pretty well. I mean, you know, they people got the main points. Uh, I mean, when you're poor, um, you, your, your ability to self-determine and uh, have the right to self-determination up to including independence of thought and, and, and action, uh, um, when you're poor, it's tampered uh, because because um, because of the nature of the society we live in, where where it's um, what's in it for me kind of um, attitude about about any anything that's going on. I mean, people people don't don't uh, have that that um, selfless serving humanity spirit. That Mao talked about serves the people, and um, and so you know this this is just, it's just uh, I don't know what to say. I, I, I'm not I'm not going to ramble on. I'll leave it right there. Thank you. We thank you, Brother Moses, and going to the last article for tonight as related to our theme affecting human development and bodies. We would like to pay your attention to this article that I actually written over a year, a little more, a little less than a year ago, September 19, 2020, entitled San Francisco Announces All Phone Calls from the County Jail Are Now Free. Now, I repeat that. San Francisco Announces All Phone Calls from County Jails Are Now Free. What a relief to know that you can talk with your family without burdening them with unaffordable phone calls. As late as I Brother Anthony, why is this a significant and why is it not getting much play in terms of all jails and incarceration facilities should have their policy? Brother Anthony, talk to us. What is the significance you take from this article? Um. Well, the the U.S. prison system in general 
and that includes local jails, are are cash cow for the bourgeoisie. And uh and uh they uh and uh, and uh, a few companies make a lot of money by charging exorbitant fees for providing phone service for prisoners. And uh and it's a burden on um and since the masses of the people that are imprisoned are poor uh you know it, uh, it 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 imposes a huge burden on poor people to stay in touch with their relatives that are imprisoned and so i think this is um uh in a way this is a drop in the bucket because uh san francisco does not by any stretch represent uh you know uh, a majority of the people that are imprisoned but it is a, a positive step in uh, in alleviating the suffering of uh, prisoners or of imprisoned people, uh, you know, in this society. And uh, uh, let's see, uh, the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate in the world. And so I think this uh, I think this move is significant in that regard, in terms of the fact that uh, that people that it makes it easier for those imprisoned to stay in contact with their families, and uh, and uh, you know loved ones, uh, you know, and that alleviates the suffering that they have to go. While you know, while they're uh, you know in prison, so I think Thank this you, is a, a healthy step. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you, brother. And since I don't know it, talk to us. What you make of these three phone calls? It's about time it should have been all, all along. The state should have been subsidized or paid for these phone calls. Um, and quite frankly, it should have been all along. As we know, the U.S. has, uh, as Brother Anthony says, we have the largest group of prisoners on planet. And we have gone from states selling prison, black prison labor to corporations to creating the industrial prison complex. So we haven't come very far. So this is a fantastic thing because part of the the jailed population, somehow they managed to have our youngest and strongest people. Instead of developing minds, we're incarcerating folks. And the only way and the only chance I think these people have for rehab is communication with their family. It's not the only way, but one of the few ways. And I'm really encouraged by this legislative action. And it not only is going to save, as the article said, prisoners a million dollars a year from one limited, very small municipality, as Brother Anthony said, but it's also going to save the government millions of dollars. So this is uh, long overdue, and I hope to see it replicated throughout the country. But I think we really need to examine uh, the prison industrial complex and the use of labor, and we should publicize companies that use uh, prison labor to produce goods, whether it's Victoria's Secret, 
whoever it is, we should be boycotting them. And I was encouraged by the article that people would have an opportunity to talk. But then again, you know, there's so many prisoners and how many, and it talked about the one line or the one device, so they may need to upgrade their uh, telecommunication system within the prisons because they talked about having access to video chats and that sort of thing. So there's another component that concerned me. Are, are, are the prisons up to the task? Do they have the infrastructure necessary to make this program the great success it could be? You know, prisoners could organize and begin to do classes over video chat, a 45-minute class, and enrich themselves. But, Brother Africa, may I go back for a moment to our last article, and um, if I may. The mic is all yours, um, sister. You know, the mic we is all yours, yes, you may. We, we, that article was profound, and it talked about the, what's happening in, in, in poor communities. Not because wealthy people live in suburbs, it's because of their access to land and resources. But we as a people are going to have to get organized and re-educate ourselves. You look at young black people and they go buy a house. Look at Woodridge, Virginia. Here we took a rural area and turned it into an urban ghetto. You go off a highway where you see nothing but little fast food places or nothing but the highway, and you step right into a development where there are 200 homes with no garden in the front, and everybody thinks they're living high because they're driving up to park right in front of their door. So they're creating an asphalt jungle in in what was 40 years ago a rural area. So, you know, we have to, as a people, rethink uh, how we uh, view success. We're buying these piggyback townhouses where you got to walk up 50 steps of laminated floors that are chemically unsound. I knew a couple that put their last money into buying one of these new places where the animals started dying from neurological diseases. It was because of the chemicals in their laminate floors. Well, what did they do? sell that place, make a small profit, and pass it on to the next person. So we're going to have to, we always talk about educating, being educated and informed, and we're going to have to educate our youth and ourselves and know that we don't want to have a home where we drive up our car six feet, ten feet from our house. We want to see some trees and walkways. We don't want more asphalt in our communities because we're taking rural communities throughout this country for working-class people that are purchasing homes and turning them into these little piggyback townhouses. It should be some type of moratorium on that type of development. And we should go back to there has to be so many trees planted Right now, they have something in D.C. called the floor area ratio. Now, you would think that has to do with floors. No, it doesn't. It has to do with the number of parking spaces you have to have for a unit. So if you got four units, you don't have to have four spaces. You have to have two and a half. Now, how that works out, I don't know. But we can put in legislative policies that requires that 
we plant trees and create green spaces, and you are penalized for not building green, not going solar, not utilizing geothermal energy as Cuba does. That's how they're staying afloat because they damn sure can't rely on Western fossil fuels to provide electricity for the island of Cuba and its people. So we learn so much from these articles as we interconnect them and see how they cross over. One article talked about geothermal energy and Cuba trying to rev that up. Well, we need to rev it up right here. We need to have legislative changes that require that we plant green, grow green, build green, and penalize anyone who does not. Thanks. Yeah, eat, eat green. Hey, thank you, Brother Africa. That's true. We need to improve our diets. I'm one of them. Yes, eat green. Yes, more kale, more collards, and grow them in your front yard like we used to. I used to see folks growing roses and collard greens all the time in their front yard. Okay, thank you, Sister. Brother Moses, talk to us. What do you think about these free phone calls from these places that have incarcerated our people? They've been robbing us and, and blind for years, and you know, this, this, you know, now they're gonna throw us some crumbs back. I mean, which which we obviously appreciate because when you're in jail, every crumb counts. And like, you know, but the point is, they they they've attacked our culture. They they you know made illegal our culture in terms of marijuana and uh, and. Uh, in prison, our countless youth as elders and just over marijuana. And so, you know, legalize it as Peter Tosh who said, we are Africans, we are Africans. He said, legalize it and I emphasize it. But uh, anyway, um, I think, you know, that we we have to uh, recognize that, you know, Of the telephones are, are expensive, and uh, and uh, everybody across the country should, should 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 get out of the profit-driven system of profits over people. And that's the basic theme of, of socialism: is that you know people before profits. And that's what it's all about, ultimately. And uh, but you know, if we were living in that kind of country, we wouldn't. We wouldn't be in the situation we're in right now. And so, you know, we need a government, a government of the people, by the people, for the people that's guided by a revolutionary party. And, uh, and, it's, and it's a question of organization. Anyway, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And closing out, Brother Haki, when we look at this particular article about San Francisco announces all phone calls from the Canada Jails are free, and our theme tonight is talking about affecting human development in our bodies. Clearly from this article, it talks about some of the positive impact of what has occurred by having access to free phone calls where you can speak to your family. Can you talk a little bit about that? And why hasn't this concept been talked about and caught on through all of the criminal justice system institutions, allowing our um, brothers and sisters have free access to talk to their families and stay in contact with their families. 
Your response, Brother Hackey. Yeah, well, first I'm glad you you uh, you, reiter- you uh, at least implied that uh, we're talking about jails and not prisons. So the prison practice in terms of charging prisons for everything remains intact. Uh, the jails in San Francisco decided to take upon this initiative, and so it's good that they did that. Because it does facilitate a, a great need, particularly when we talk about trying to keep the families together. So society they always talk about the, the, the inevitable breakdown of the, of the, the marital unit. And for, you know, so for them, uh, not to support something that, that, that San Francisco is doing is, a, is an outrage. Uh, clearly, you know, by having by allowing these prisoners to actually communicate uh, with their with their families, creates the possibility that these families will remain intact once these individuals are released from jail. But the reason why the the reason why the 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 the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the powerful are opposed to such such initiative is very clear. It's all about the profit. It's about profit. And one of the things we talk about the Constitution in terms of is legit in terms of. The Constitution stating the legitimacy as it applies to slavery, as long as you're incarcerated, uh, that very much holds true. And so, therefore, uh, these individuals are perceived as slaves, and so their incarceration is of no importance. And so, therefore, treat them as less than human is just par for the course. So clearly, uh, you know, we need more of what San Francisco is doing, but it has to be done in the prison system. And I don't see that happening, given the the, the, the kind of pull, the prison the prison uh, industrial. Uh, Industrial Administration has in terms of his relationship uh, with the congressional uh, Congress members. Thank you, Brother Haki, and to our listening audience. We now will make our closing remarks for today's program, which major theme was affecting human development and bodies. We can start off with you, Brother Moses. Give us your final thoughts for today's program, Brother Moses. Yeah, okay. Um, what is it? I never meant to cause you any heartache, never meant to cause you any pain. Only one one thing does see you laughing beneath the purple rain. Anyway, um I'm I'm um determined that um reality is is stubborn and it's consistent and that we need to get together as a as a Progressive people and people with a vision and people with a purpose and uh, and decide the fate of this this country uh, more or less. Uh, um, and we need an independent program of action. And uh, um, the last last I left off um, in terms of the U.S. struggle, I was with uh, the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Um, a lot of water has gone beneath the bridge since those days. So, and I, I think, um, I think you know, we anyway, a revolution is inevitable. It's the people and the people alone who would decide the situation. But uh, we need organization. And I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Next, we'll move to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, your final thoughts for today. Well, um, again, uh, I think it was a fascinating show. I think uh, we need to remember that the prison industrial complex is uh, uh, just an extension of the old uh, prison gangs where states were able to rent out prisoners to private corporations 
So we see this, as uh, Brother Hakeem says, as a constitutional issue. So therefore, we need to see changes in government. And I think there should be no slaves in prison because what we see happening in this country is the industrialization, institutionalization, I'm sorry, of everything. People in nursing homes are subjected to buying from vendors in nursing homes. They aren't allowed to leave freely unless they're with someone else. So they have to buy sodas, chips, personal toiletries, everything from right there in the nursing home. We see in, in, in multifamily housing projects, we see increasingly security guards walking around the building, the buildings telling people when to leave certain areas. So this industrialization of our society is a real problem. And what happens to the least of us will happen in some way to all of us. So we need to remember that and remember that education, health care, uh, housing are basic human rights. And your labor and having control over your labor is also a human right. And this continuous exploitation of prisoners being allowed to grow, to actually develop hot spaces where people are paying to suffer in overheated, unhealthy environments, this has to be outlawed. When we are organized and we take over our government and we put in elected officials that stand for the people, stand for Mother Earth, stand for the environment, stand for every person in every nation, we will see a change. And thank you so much for a wonderful, wonderful show. And I'm just thank you for all your guests and your analysts, Brother Hakeem, Brother Moses, Brother Anthony, yourself, Brother Africa, and everyone have a uh, safe week. And I have to urge folks to get vaccinated. I know that vaccines have been a danger in this country and African people have been the subject of uh, medical abuse and continue to be. But this pandemic is a scientific reality and we have to stop it now. Thank you. Good night. Thank you, Sister Alnor. Brother Haki, your final thoughts. Yeah, well, you know, um, I recently read an article on the Global Central Bank's plan to boost share of the Chinese yuan while reducing the U.S. dollar holdings. Interestingly enough, a third of the world central banks will add the yuan to the reserve, uh, the reserve asset. In other words, in order to do business, they're going to use Chinese money in terms of facilitating that. Uh, you know, one of the things is that uh, the article, they talk about the fact that Russia has zero dollars in terms of its sovereign wealth fund. The sovereign wealth fund, of course, is a fund that's used in terms of providing those things for population needs. Uh, at the same time, it plans to increase its yuan holding or its Chinese money. Now, also, it tends to, re- tend to eliminate uh, what it already did. It ditched $5 billion in, of, of its oil fund in dollars, so they sort of got rid of that. No more dollars. And now, when we talk about 20% of the central banks reducing dollar holdings, the question inevitably becomes why. Well, very simply, uh, countries around the world can no longer, are no longer occurring in the United States. They're no longer willing to subsidize the U.S. economy. So one of the things we have to understand that when we talk about subsidizing the U.S. economy, when I talk about the fact that the U.S. is the only country in the world that can create money, don't have to produce anything, 
it means that people, that the, the, the U.S. government depends on countries around the world to buy those dollars. Uh, if they don't buy those dollars, it create a real economic hardship for, for America. The problem is that when, those, when you buy those dollars and the value of those dollars continue to fall, it means that those same countries that buy those dollars have to use more of their own currency just in order to, to, to pad their budgets. And so, therefore, it's a hardship for countries around the world. They made a decision that we got to get rid of these dollars. What are the implications for the national economy? What does that mean for people right here in America? One of the things we got to understand, that when we look at the situation where in America, where increasingly the wealthy have access to all the, all the wealth, they in turn take the wealth and, 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 and put it in accounts abroad, or they, re, uh, or they uh, reinvest in investments that they previously made to up their investment um, uh, portfolios for the purpose of making more and more money. Well, we're essentially cut out from that process. So the poor people, the working people in society, don't have access to that money. So which means that not having access to that money, it means that the value of that dollar continues to decline, which means that the economy becomes more precarious. It becomes more unstable. It means that for people in society who don't have money, who don't have access to money, those people who are not capitalists, it means that you are a burden for society. Inevitably, the question becomes, what do the leaders of this country do with all these people who are burdened to society? I want you to think about that very, very clearly. And I'm going to close with that, Brother Africa. I know you're running out of time. But anyway, I just wanted to, 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 to raise that warning because I think it's important that people really start thinking about, you know, what's going on in society and to really emphasize uh, the importance in terms of understanding economics. A lot, of, you know, back in the 80s, you used to talk about up your economic quote, quotient. Well, they changed that once people started grasping toward economics and understanding. They changed that because they realized, to the point that pe- to the extent that people begin to understand economics, they begin to see right through all this nonsense that's taking place in society. So clearly, you know, uh, the, there's real danger. We have to understand the nature of that danger and understand it's all rooted in the economy. And I close with that, brother Africa. And as always, I encourage people to unravel the matrix because that is key. Without unraveling the matrix, there's no possibility for a positive movement forward. And that's the bottom line. You have a good night, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother IT. Unravel the Matrix. One thing you come to find out that you've been fooled all your life because the U.S. dollar ain't no fiat money. It's an illusion. It's an illusion that you gave to it. To it, you can take it away and take it from it. You are the motivation. You are the production. You are the creator or developing creator a concept called the economy. Only other people for you. But anyway, we'd like to thank everyone for allowing us the opportunity to come to their homes this evening where we spoke truth to the powerless and the powerful. We'd like to bring, thank our brother uh, from South Sudan for giving his position and presentation on what's going on in South Sudan and Africa. And we'd like to thank you, our friends, supporters, for listening and sharing our programs with you and Continue to share our program with other people in your network. We want to build a power base where Africa on the moon is in the homes of every African throughout the world. Remember, we are fighting an ideological propaganda war. We must tell our stories and understanding. We must communicate among ourselves. This is just a vehicle in which we can do that. So come back and join us next Sunday, time at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S., and let's continue to move Africa and Africa on the move forward by having these important dialogues. We would also like to remind you that 
we come and ask you to come and join us as well as with other organizations such as the African Women's Association as we continue to plan for our annual tour for your trip to Cuba from December 27th to January 3rd. If you're interested, please email us at Africa on the Move 2 or the African Women's Association 2 at gmail.com. Until next time, we subscribe to go forward Apple backwards level and remind you that remember Pan African is each key. It was set Africa hell, African people free. Until then, we will see you next week. This has been Africa on the Moon.
where we feature great inspirational speeches and quotes from African leaders. Fellow Freedom Fighters, comrades and friends, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to Accra and to this Conference of African Freedom Fighters and supporters of the growing movement for Africa's liberation and unity. It is good for our cause to have a periodic meeting of this kind to examine our position in the great struggle to rid Africa completely and forever of imperialism and its handmaidens, colonialism and neocolonialism. Africa is rich and not poor. As the great world that has been taken out of our continent over five centuries of despoliation and extortion, very well put. Africa has immense actual and potential wealth. Gold, diamond, copper, manganese, bauxite. Iron ore, uranium, asbestos, chrome, cobalt, a host of other minerals. <laughs> Our essential cultural produce have all been drained away by colonialist imperialism. Africa is far from being poor. It is Africans who are poor, not Africa. <laughs> and they are poor because of the uncounted profit that has been made out of the exploitation of their labor and their land. If we are being baited to enter a European community, we must have something that community needs and needs badly when it pretends to offer a bonus by way of aid. When Greeks come bearing Greeks, should we not look them well in the mouth? <laughs> if I may mix my metaphor. But I'm sure you get my meaning. <laughs> I raise this point so that it will stay in your mind when you may be tempted by the seductive promises of new colonialism to forget the real character of colonialist imperialism and be persuaded away from your own true interests and those of Africa. For today, we must each see ourselves as part of Africa in order that we may face colonialist imperialism and its new form, new colonialism, on a continent-wide front. For unity must be the keynote of our actions. Our enemies are many, and they stand ready to pounce upon and exploit our very weakness. They tell us that this particular person or that particular country has greater or more favorable potentialities than the other. They do not tell us that we should unite, that we are all as good as we are able to make ourselves once we are free. Remember, always, that you have four stages to make. 
First, the attainment of freedom and independence. Secondly, the consolidation of that freedom and independence. Thirdly, the creation of unity and community between the free African states. Fourth, the economic and social reconstruction of Africa. This requires some plain speaking. And for the sake of Africa, let us speak plainly. As I see, our greatest danger stems from disunity and the inability to see that the realization of our hopes and aspirations, the realization of our objective of total African independence and of our future progress and prosperity is inextricably bound up with the necessity to unify our policy and actions in connection with the continuous struggle for independence and the greater tax of economic and social reconstruction beyond it. We must therefore face the issue of African unity now, for only unity will make the artificial boundaries and regional demarcations imposed by colonialism obsolete and superfluous. African unity will thus provide an effective remedy for border disputes and international troubles. In a united Africa, there could be no frontier claims between Ethiopia and Somalia, or between Zanzibar and Kenya, Guinea or Liberia, or between Ghana, Togoland and the Ivory Coast. Because because we would, we would regard ourselves as one great continental family of nations. Some of the leaders, it must be confessed, do not see the struggle of their brother Africans as part of their own struggle. Even if they did, they would not be free to express their solidarity. This rift are consciously created by the imperialists between Africans, where they can sit back and watch with sly satisfaction, as well as contempt for those who fail to see how they are being used against Africa's best interests. Regrettably, regrettably, those states include some who were among the freedom fighters of yesterday and who haven't won their independence are willing to drop it for some token aid and thereby deny to those still struggling for freedom even their moral support. Here is a phenomenon against which all African freedom fighters must be on their guard and resist the utmost. Even though I appreciate the difficulties facing us, I must admit I find it strange to watch some of us returning wing willingly to the colonialist fold. This time, they don't even have to, they don't even have the excuse of being forced to subject themselves to foreign domination. It makes one wonder why so much effort and sacrifice and so many lives were given up to the achievement of independence in the first place if it can only be so quickly and easily surrendered. We must begin to build immediately our own continental common market 
For it is easy for every anyone who studies the common market organization closely to realize, to realize that the common market is aimed at harnessing the African countries to satisfy the profit loss of the imperialist bloc and to prevent us from borrowing an independent neutralist policy. It is easy to see that the imperialists and the colonialists are determined to retain the African countries in the position of suppliers of cheap raw materials. If we do not resist this threat, and if we throw in our lot with the common market, we shall doom the economy of Africa to a state of perpetual subjection to the economy of Western Europe. This will, of course, hinder the industrialization of our young African states. It is impossible to think of economic development and national independence without possessing an unfettered capacity for maintaining a strong industrial power. The activities of the common market are therefore fraught with dangerous political and economic consequences for the independent African states. The, organi the organization constitutes an attempt to replace the old system of colonial exploitation by a new system of collective colonialism, which will be stronger and more dangerous than the old evils we are striving to liquidate from our continent. This is another reason why we should come together in a unified African economic plan, which, operating on a continental scale, can make a solid attack on the imperialist domination in Africa. We should without delay, aim at the creation of a joint African military command. There is little wisdom in our present separate effort to build up and maintain defense forces, which in any case would be ineffective in a major world conflict. If we examine this problem realistically, we would ask which single African state could protect itself against an imperialist aggressor? And how much more difficult this would be when some states are allowing the imperialists to maintain bases on their territories. I have already referred to the military forces which South Africa is raising and the danger it poses for the new African states and the struggle of those still in chains. Only our unity can provide us with anything like adequate protection. Those problems can best be met within a unified Africa. And it should be possible in the higher reaches of our endeavor to devise a constitutional structure which will secure, which will secure the objectives I have outlined and yet preserve the sovereignty of each of the countries joining the Union. Countries within the Union will naturally maintain their own constitutions, continue to use their own national emblems and national anthems and other symbols and proliferating of sovereignty. Regional associations and territorial groupings can only be 
other forms of balkanization unless they are conceived within the framework of a continental union. There are existing models which can modify, which we can modify or adapt to our pattern. The United States of America, the Soviet Union, India and China have proved the efficacy of unions embracing large stretches of land and population. Long live African freedom fighters. Long live African independence. Long live your struggle. ...of this brother, and he's still blazing a trail, even to them. So he has an eternal flame. His flame don't burn out. Some of y'all flames burn out. His flame is still strong. Let us all get on our feet, please. And let's give a warm round of applause to a great hero, all the way from Guinea, all the way from the mother country. Our brother, our friend, Brother Kwame Toure. Brother Kwame Toure. As he comes down, let's give it up as he comes down the aisle. Brother Kwame Dure, this is a historic occasion for us to bring our brother back again to the slave theater. Let's give a warm round of applause to our brother, Brother Kwame Dure, who's been on the fire line, who shook up America in 1966 when he hollered, Black Power! Black power, 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 black power. Black power! Black power! What time is it? What time is it? What time is it? What time is it? All right, brother Kwame Ture, let's give it up, brother Kwame Ture.
Thank you. We want to thank you for your warm welcome. You must excuse us for uh, sitting, but we have uh, some pain in our legs. <coughs> and uh, we're trying as much as possible to stay off of it while we're doing some tests with the uh, doctors. Of course, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be with the United African Movement. Uh, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be with the United African Movement. And uh, there are three, members of, uh, three other members of our Central Committee who are present. Uh, Brother Ron Gibbs is here, no? Brother Ron Gibbs is here, yes. Sister Mawina Kuyate, who's also the head of the All-African Women's Revolutionary Union. And of course, we're always proud of our living history. Uh, this brother who has uh, come through many struggles was the chair of the Black Panther Party in New York during the rough times and since joined the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. I've had the honor of working with him for almost 30 years, a member of our Central Committee, the youngest member, David Brothers. <laughs> Thank you. Of course, we are always uh, honored to be with the uh, United African Movement because the world is divided into many, many different categories. But one of the categories which interests those of us who are concerned with advancing humanity the most is that between the conscious and the unconscious. This uh, division between the conscious and the unconscious must be properly understood. The people instinctively love freedom and they will instinctively fight for freedom. But you cannot win freedom on instincts, you can only win freedom on reason. Therefore, the unconscious are those who react on instinct. The conscious are those who react on reason. The job of the conscious is to make the unconscious conscious. Let us make a simple example. I think it was in 1992, after one more brutal beatings too many, the African population in Los Angeles, California, revolted, rose up in righteous rebellion. This was instinctively revolutionary. Instinctively in the sense that it wasn't planned. Instinctive in the sense that it was this reaction to brutality. And this instinctive revolutionary act was very costly to American capitalism. It even had to bring in the American army, very costly. But since it was on instinct, it had no reason, nothing to direct it, it would spin itself out. Those who participated in it were largely unconscious. We must come to understand that the overwhelming majority of our people are unconscious. But just because they're unconscious, you shouldn't think they don't want freedom. As a matter of fact, sometimes the unconscious is quicker willing to give their lives in struggle than the conscious. These are simple facts. Would you imagine what it would be like when we are conscious rebellions, when we consciously organize to rebel in Los Angeles with reason? I mean making supply lines, 
making sure armaments are there, having hospital aids, having fire brigades, just like they do even in Ireland, nothing big, just a little planning. Just a little planning. This is what we want to speak to you about this evening. Making the unconscious conscious. Now we must say from the very beginning, the only, underline the word only, the only route to consciousness is through struggle. Now for example, we've shown you the unconscious struggle. Those who rose up in righteous rebellion against the state police in Los Angeles, they were, they were consciously involved in struggle. They were involved in struggle, unconscious but involved in struggle. The conscious must understand precisely what their task is, and we've said this two years ago here, we repeat it. Ours is not to teach the people to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Our task is not to teach the conscious to be, to teach the unconscious to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Because unconsciously, instinctively, they seek freedom. What we must do is make them conscious. Look, you want freedom anyway. Let's be serious. Let's sit down. Let's plan it. Let's wait protracted war. And let's tear down the system and walk on to liberation. It's as simple as that. This aspect of the unconscious becoming conscious is linked to mobilization and organization. Something we mentioned last year. We must make clear distinctions between mobilizers and organizers. To be an organizer, you must be a mobilizer. But being a mobilizer doesn't make you an organizer. Much confusion is to be found here. Malcolm X was a great mobilizer. He was a great organizer. Martin Luther King was a great mobilizer. He was not a great organizer. These facts can be easily seen from King and Malcolm. When Malcolm went to a place, he left a mosque. When King went to demonstrations, he broke down desegregation and he moved on. As a matter of fact, King was not concerned with organization to the point that even though he was the most popular Baptist preacher in America without the shadow of a doubt, and probably beyond the shadow of a doubt the most loved, he could not become president of the Baptist, National Baptist uh, Convention. Yeah, so many of them. The National Baptist Convention. <laughs> As a matter of fact, if my memory serves me correctly now, and I remember it was Mohammed Speaks that uh, carried the article on the front page in 1964 when King tried to become president of the National uh, Baptist Convention, there was so much confusion there that a minister was actually put, pushed off the stage and died in the trouble. Yeah. And of course, King lost. The man who won was a reactionary man by the name of Jackson. He never did nothing for the people, never cared about the people, just was a pork chop minister who used their money to put gas in his big Cadillac. But he was organized. But he was organized. We say that we must come to know the difference between mobilization and organization because the enemy will use mobilization to demobilize us. Mobilization is very easy. Very, very easy. Because since we are people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, 
Anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. Miss Sally lost a job. Let's rally. She'll get a job back. People will come and rally. So-and-so got kicked out of school because the teacher's unjust. The unjust. The people will come and rally. They will come to rally at issues. And this is what mobilization does. It mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues. We're concerned with the system. The difference must be properly understood. The difference must be properly understood. Mobilization usually leads for reform action, not to revolutionary action. If we would look scientifically at the October 16th million and more march, we would see clearly that this was a mobilized event, not an organized event. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization. One of the characteristics of mobilization is that it is temporary. Organization is permanent and eternal. Clear differences must be made because the unconscious can usually be captured easily around one issue items, around mobilization items, but it's hard to catch them around organization. But these unconscious must be brought to organization. We must transform mobilization to organization. We say the enemy will come and use mobilization to demobilize us. Many brothers and sisters who have been to the Million and More March will say to you, I was there. Well, what are you doing today, my sister? I was there. There weren't too many sisters out there, but you know, with a million brothers together, you know where I had to be. I was there. <laughs> and then, of course, you find brothers, yeah, I was there, I was there. I helped you. What are you doing today, brother? If we're not careful, we allow mobilization to become events. The struggle is never an event. It's a process, a continual, eternal process. We say it is our job to use mobilization to drive us to organization. You know our theme is organization. We want power. We don't want money. We don't want fame. We don't want fortune. We don't want popularity. We want power. Power. And power comes only from the organized masses. Power comes only from the organized masses. Therefore, since this is what we're concerned with, power, and we as a Pan-Africanist, we have every right to be concerned with it. Africa, after all, is the richest continent on the face of the earth. Properly organized, should be the most powerful continent on the face of the earth. Therefore, our drive towards power is clear. We want power, and we can only have power through the organized masses. Of course, capitalism, a system which in deforming our thinking always seeks to make it appear as if the organized masses is some unattainable goal. Even the other day, when speaking to a sister who, uh, sister who's been involved in uh, activities over a period of years, she said, Kwame uh, Ture, uh, so you, when you say a mass party, what do you mean? I said, I mean a mass party. She said, but the APRP goes everywhere in England, they go in the Caribbean, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in the United States, in Africa, and they're always saying about a mass party. What do you mean? I said, every African in the world inside our party. She said, are you going to get that? 
I said, that's what I'm working for. And if I don't get it, my granddaughter gonna get it. But I'm working for it. <clears throat> Her disbelief comes from the fact that capitalism tells us that, well, you can be scientific about everything except human nature. That people are so different, they have such different tastes, such different tanalala, that you can't bring them together under the same roof. This is a lie. We will never tire of saying it. Capitalism does not lie some of the time. It lies all of the time. When it tells the truth, it's a result of a double lie. <coughs> it's a logical fact. It's a logical fact. So capitalism has this belief that you can't organize all the people around the same thing. That's not true. You can organize all the people around one thing. Truth. Now, what capitalism will try to make it appear as if the truth is not one truth, but anybody can have the truth. This is stupidity. Nobody's born with the truth inside of them. If they were, they wouldn't need to live. We come to know the truth from outside of us. Some people think that they know the truth because they were born to know the truth. That's a lie. You know the truth from constant struggle against lies. That's how you know the truth. Constant struggle against lies. For example, they try to make it appear as if we Africans will not arrive at uniting ourselves even around, even the question around our identity. Well, you may call some of them Africans, but some call themselves black, some still call themselves colored, some, that's fact, they do that. But this is because they've been miseducated by a system which seeks to keep us divided, and this is the truth. And this is the truth. Obviously, we cannot be, all of us, so many different things. We must be one thing. Of course, for our party, there's no question. As for the United African Movement, we're Africans. End of discussion. End of discussion. This struggle is not an easy struggle. The struggle to go from Negro to black was a difficult struggle. Capitalism did everything to roll it back. Even had us confused. I'm not black, look at me, I'm brown colored. Yes. I'm not black, I got Indian blood in me. Oh. What nonsense they didn't have us say just to run away from the truth. We told them then, it is more difficult to go from Negro to black than it is to go from black to African. Many people criticized us for our efforts. Oh, in the 1970s, we had our last press conference, we said, we're going to put the word Africans on the lip of every African in America and we're not going to use the capitalist media press. And we have done it and we have not used the capitalist media press. As a matter of fact, the capitalist media press, in trying to stop us from going to Africans in America, tried to throw out African Americans. They did it. We saw the whole scene. It's our job. We followed it carefully. Of course, they want to say African-Americans, of course, that keeps us exactly where we are. If you're African-American, you're obviously not the same like an African-Kenyan. And certainly not the same like an African-Brazilian. And certainly not the same like an African-Trinidadian, etc., etc., etc. But once you're just African, ain't no question. Ain't no question. 
You African, yeah, where you were born? Trinidad. You African, yeah, where were you born? Uganda. You African, yeah, where were you born? Egypt. You African, yeah, all Africans. Once you have proper identity, one of your biggest problems is solved. Because a people must know their national interests. A people must have a clear understanding of their national interest. The job of American imperialism is to let us think that our national interest is within the confines of American imperialism. That's why black American, African American, anything but make sure they hold on to America. When the conscious comes to understand that the Africans born in America, Africans living in America, their whole outlook changes completely. America no longer becomes their world. Of course, this is a difficult task because America convinced everyone that she is the world. I'm sometimes amazed when I come in this country and hear them say world news. Here they come. World news. Today, President Clinton said... <clears throat> world news. Today, Newt Greenwich said... World news, those who's running for president can't. It's like, you know, it's like their World Football Association. No, nobody played but them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, the first conscious act in organizing our people is to let them know who they are. If you think you're an American, you will fight to protect the interests of capitalist America. If you know you ain't no American, you fight to destroy every aspect of American capitalism. <laughs> Our people have been unconsciously moving towards Africa. You know, I am uh, very fortunate. I spend a lot of time with our people, and I always stay with the poor. I stay with the poor because the poor, they are pure. I mean, the poor will fight and give their lives for positions which they're incapable of occupying. They shock me sometimes with their naivety and their honesty. No wonder they can so easily be exploited. I remember one sitting in Ghana at the house of uh, Akbar Mohammed, who's the uh, international representative of the Nation of Islam. And uh, there was a lot of people in the house, so I walked outside in the gate, and I sat down, there's a little kennel there, and a concrete, I sat down by the kennel. The gardener next door came and sat down next to me. We began talking. So we talked naturally about Ghana. We talked about Ghana, we talked about Nkrumah. So after a while he said, were you born in Ghana? Are you Ghanaian? I said, no, I wasn't born in Ghana, I just live in Guinea. He said, but you know a lot about uh, Ghana. I said, well, yeah, I did a lot of study of the Ghana Revolution. I didn't tell him that I was the... Uh, political secretary of Kwame Nkrumah when Nkrumah was co-president in Guinea. I didn't even tell him who I was. You know, Kwame Ture meant nothing to him, just another name. After talking with the man for about half an hour, you know what the man said to me? He doesn't even know me now. He said, you know what? He said, listen, I only went to third standard. That's like about third grade. He said, I don't have no education, but people like me, we could fight and put people like you in power and you'll help us. Yes. I've seen it everywhere. In the South, I used to see people die for positions they couldn't occupy. As a matter of fact, people who couldn't get to the university died so students who had the ability could get to the university. People who couldn't vote died so people become mayors. 
It is these pure poor that we must be concerned with. These are the ones we must organize. These are the real makers of history. Forget the ones who are always talking and doing nothing. Get the poor, the pure. Watch their movement. The instincts are always correct. Our people have been unconsciously moving more and more towards Africa. Of that there isn't the slightest question. I saw it years ago. In the mid-1970s, I was going through Mississippi. I'd spent the 60s there and visited a sister whom I know was very active in the movement. She'd now been married and had a child. So the husband and her were very excited. They wanted to show me the child, as any uh, parents would be. And of course, me too, I was excited because I knew it was a little girl. I wanted to see uh, my granddaughter, if you will. So uh, when she came, I held the door. I said, what's the name? She said, uh, Ajola. I said, Ajola? She said, yes. I said, what does it mean? She said, I don't know. I just made it up. Does it sound African? <laughs> this was in the mid-1970s in Mississippi. I remember in the 1970s, late 1970s, I saw a young man. He was wearing a red, black, and green jacket. I stopped the man, young boy. I said, young blood, what's this uh, red, black, and green? He said, those are our colors. I said, what do you mean, our colors? He said, man, these are our colors. You don't know our colors? I said, no, what do you mean, our colors? He said, man, red for blood, green for the lamb, black for us. You don't know this? I said, no, I don't know this. He said, man, where are you coming from? He started to walk away. I said, brother, have you ever heard of a man called Marcus Garvey? He said, Marcus Garvey, who's he? I said, he's the one who gave you the colors. <laughs> the unconscious are moving towards Africa. It is job of the conscious to make them conscious of their unconscious actions. Since our people are moving towards Africa, it behooves us clearly to come seriously and to organize properly this movement and putting Africa as its primary. This is the job of the conscious. But the conscious gets their sustenance from the unconscious. I am certain that most of the brothers and sisters attending the Million and More March were unconscious. Unconscious in the sense that they do not consciously try to develop themselves in a systematically basis, on a day-to-day -day basis, to make a contribution to the people. But the milieu which that unconscious mass created now makes it possible for the conscious mass to make this unconscious mass quickly conscious. <laughs> quickly conscious. And this is our task. I had the honor, when working for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1968 in Washington, D.C., after having served as one year as the chair of the organization, of being with the SNCC team that helped develop the first black united front in this country. It came out of Washington, D.C. It was well organized. After leaving for Africa and uh, much confusion, mainly with the infusion of money into the black united front, the front fell apart. Moving to the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, we have done everything in our possibility to create an African United Front. What do we mean by an African United Front? We are saying that those organizations which are politically on the front lines fighting for our people, like the NAACP, like the Urban League, like the Nation of Islam, etc., etc., should come together and form a united front. This United Front is a very simple thing now. A very simple task. 
All it means is that we come together and have common meetings. And if we hear one attacking the other newspaper, we don't respond to the newspaper. We telephone each other and ask them. Our party has been doing much work on this. Because we're among comrades who work, we will give you some of our files, which is not made public. Only here are we doing so. The Nation of Islam was an observer at the Washington, D.C. Black United Front. Although invited to join, they felt that at that time they wanted to observe. They were allowed full participation except voting, which they themselves accepted as observers. That is, they could fully participate in every level of the discussion. When the United Front broke up, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party quickly moved to put together a United Front. We had brought together Mr. Roy Wilkins, who was alive at that time. This was in 1972. Uh, Vernon Jordan. Who was before Vernon Jordan? The one who died in Africa. Whitney Young. No, it was jo I'm sorry. Whitney Young had died. It's correct. It was Vernon Jordan. Vernon Jordan was then at the Urban League. Of course, uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was alive, and he was sending uh, Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan as his representative. Jesse Jackson was representing Push. Dorothy Hyde, the uh, National Council of Negro Women. Reverend uh, Abernathy, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, in his core, and we represented the All African People's Revolutionary Party. My brothers and sisters, I'll tell you the truth. You must never get discouraged in struggle. You will build something, and the enemy will knock it down, and you'll have to start from zero. But as we say in our party, we're starting from a higher qualified zero. You must never be discouraged in struggle. As a matter of fact, the easiest way for the enemy to take you out is to make you frustrated and disgusted. Oh, I went to that meeting. They ain't doing nothing. I ain't got no time for them. Until they get serious, I ain't going there. What you doing? I ain't doing nothing. And they really think that they're intelligent. They think they've made a great statement. So you must not be discouraged, but the enemy's job is to discourage us. We did a lot of work trying to get that meeting together. A lot of work. A lot of work. And because of a Zionist plot, because of a Zionist plot, they wrecked the entire meeting in 48 hours. The meeting was wrecked, but we were not. <laughs> and we are revolutionaries. You knock it down, we're coming back stronger. We accepted defeat, we licked our wounds, we pursued our battle. We continued with this aspect of it. During that time, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad passed. Before his death, you know, death has robbed me of so many things in life. It really has, really has. The most recent one was I have a brother who's in jail in uh, Florida for killing a white policeman. Uh, this brother has been isolated in jail. Nobody writes him. Uh, so he has a lot of problems. And uh, his father and I knew each other from struggling days back in the 60s in Dayton. Asked me to write him. I wrote him. So you know when brothers are in jail, they ain't got nothing to do. So he writes me a letter every day. And uh, I respond to all his letters because he's in jail, you know. And uh, last year, when uh, speaking on telephone, 
I told him, I think I have everything careful. I'm going to speak to uh, Bill Kunstler, and I'm sure Bill Kunstler will look at the case. In March of last year, I had lunch with Bill Kunstler and, uh, in New York here, and Bill Kunstler agreed to take the case. And he said, but you know, I'm just a little bit busy now. Give me about two or three months, and then send me a letter, and I'll pick up the case. So I waited two or three months, and when I wrote the letter, before the letter arrived, uh, Kunstler was dead. So death has robbed me of many uh, political victories in life and created more work for me, but I'm a revolutionary. I accept it because I know my death is going to create a lot of work for others. <laughs> so it's robbed me of a lot. The Honorable Elijah's, uh, Mohammed's death robbed me of a, robbed the All African Peace Revolution Party of a golden chance to uh, create the United Front. Of course, you know, when the Nation of Islam came up, there was first... Uh, Wallace Dean Mohammed, the son of the uh, Honorable Elijah Mohammed, and then you know there was a little uh, discussion, and uh, finally uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan decided to uh, return with the original uh, theories and actions of the Honorable Elijah Mohammed. When Minister Louis Farrakhan first came out, of course, now let's let you know, I've known Minister Louis Farrakhan for over 30 years, and worked with him for over 30 years. Of course, we're not in the press all the time, but we're in contact all the time. And uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan and I discussed much, step by step. Of course, the only thing I had in my mind was the African United Front. That's all I want. And uh, Minister Farrakhan said, okay, he sees it, he understands it, but he needs to get a little bit stronger. Fine. In 1982, our party made an assessment, and uh, we said, okay, the Nation of Islam is strong enough now to do the work for the African United Front. We cannot do it, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, because... uh, from the time they see us, we tell them we're revolutionary, we're socialist, we ain't bending, we're anti-Zionist, you can do what you want, that's your problem. You understand? So we don't bend, but the Honorable uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan, he's charming and, you know, he's sentimental, minister, can quote Bibles, so he can sit down with preachers and all these others, etc. So after observing his movements, uh, the African People's Revolutionary Party mandated me to go and uh, visit uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan and to give him the uh, files of the African United Front and tell him that it was his responsibility to call the front. Of course, it was a task that I enjoyed undertaking. I hadn't seen him in some time and uh, I had a beautiful day. We spent the entire day at his house there in Chicago. You know, he just uh, separated uh, from uh, uh, Dean Wallace Mohammed and his force had been coming back. And uh, I took for him some old copies of Mohammed Speaks. Now, if you look at the old copies of Muhammad Speaks, every middle page that you open had two black hands reaching across the oceans calling for a united front. Every, uh, every issue of Muhammad Speaks. We must know our history. And we will never be ungrateful to those who taught us. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad has taught me an awful lot. And I know he's taught our people an awful lot. And for that alone, I'll be forever grateful to him. Minister Farrakhan agreed to take the program. He had no choice. I told him, this is your program. This is what your leader says you're supposed to do. Hey, my leader is your leader. And you say you're following his footsteps, you know, and he was getting ready to do it. He didn't do it. Here's your chance. You're supposed to do what he didn't do, you know. So, of course, Farrakhan had no choice. He had to accept it. We were well prepared. Everything was in proper order to have, finally, once again, our African United Front. 
by 19, uh, when was uh, Jesse first talking about running for president? It was 1984. 83 was announced. When did uh, Farrakhan make the alliance with him? November 83. So by 82, I left me. I went back to Africa. Everything was moving. I was in contact with uh, Minister Farrakhan, our party people in contact, feeding us step by step. I came back uh, in early 1983. I met with uh, Minister Farrakhan. I explained to him uh, precisely the steps that we thought we could help in bringing the African United Front together. After some time, he asked that we have a meeting late in the year, probably around September, October. I'm telling the truth exactly what was said at the meeting. Minister Farrakhan said to me, he said, uh, at that time, uh, Jesse Jackson had declared he was going to run for presidency. And he was under a lot of threats, you know. And I certainly thought that some crazy whitey was going to pop him, you know. But I have no problem with it. My life is on the line all the time. I put my life on the line for one thing. You put your life on the line for another thing. I ain't got no problem with it. You know, so Minister Louis Farrakhan came to see me. He said, you know, and he's very clever, Minister Farrakhan. He's very clever. When he's already, he wants to soften up, he comes, he always plays that violin for you. Oh, Brother Kwame, you're my younger brother. But you know you are so profound in political analysis. You surpass us all. But even though I am your older brother, I must come and seek advice from you. <laughs> He's rough, you know. He's rough on that violin. <laughs> he sings some sweet songs on that violin. <laughs> so, of course, after seeking my advice, he came to seek my advice. He said... I want to make a decision. I said, what's that decision? He said, I want to put the FOI at uh, the disposition of Jesse Jackson to protect him. I said, well, if you want to do that, that's your decision. He said, well, you don't seem enthusiastic about it. I said, well, I'm not. <laughs> he said, well, uh, Jesse Jackson might get killed. I said, he probably will get killed. He said, don't you think we need to protect him? I said, that's your decision. It's your FOI. You know, he said... So now he saw that it was getting serious. He said, uh, you know, he's clever, he's clever. Because he'll switch on you fast. You know, if you, know, if you don't switch with him, you'll be in back gear while he's in front gear. You're already saying yes when you start, thought you were saying no. Yeah, he's rough. He said, well, uh, I bet if you were uh, being hounded and attacked by uh, people, you'd want the FOI to protect you. I reminded him very slowly and very carefully. Minister Farrakhan, when I was elected chair of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the first public meeting I had as chair was a meeting with the Honorable Elijah Mohammed in his house in Chicago where I spent 15 hours. In fact, it was here that I met Mohammed Ali for the first time. This is way back. This is before, well, all you old people, so before you were born. We were talking about 1966 here, easily. 30 years ago, yeah. At the end of the meeting, of course, you know I'm a young man. I'm, I'm 26 years old at this time, you know, 26. I've heard the Honorable Elijah Muhammad all my life. What am I going to say to this man? This man used to raise me up, you understand? This man taught me things, gave me courage. I said, he's saying that on the radio? Is he crazy? Yeah, he's a white devil. That's what I said. They ain't nothing but white devils. That's what they, yeah. Yes. He'd tell the truth right out there. He wouldn't buy this town for nothing. You know, and uh, I reminded uh, Honorable Elijah, uh, the Minister Farrakhan, I said, at the end of the day, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad looked at me. I was sitting directly across from his table.